The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at Ping.tv slash gold. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. I hope everyone had a wonderful weekend and you had an opportunity to check out episode 134. We continue to analyze the 1995 paper, Industrial Society and its Future. And we talked a little bit about some of the stories you've been sending me. We talked about starting to make moves to uh, build your life outside of the system. I told you Wide Awake Jim would be back here on the show today for episode 135. He was a CPA, a financial planner, and then got into oil and gas royalties back in 2010. And as you know, he's been on the show now, I don't know, eight or nine times. He just keeps coming on. He's got hundreds and hundreds of documents. He's reviewed from the Bank for International Settlements all the way through World Economic Forum, looking at the climate change hustle, the green energy grift, looking at central bank digital currency, and this overall technocratic slave system that we find ourselves in today and that is growing every single day that goes by. So Jim has now read, as I mentioned yesterday, at least two more books since his last appearance, which was less than a week ago. And so now I have 60 pages of highlighted uh, books. Uh, I've got more articles he sent over. So today what we're going to do is we are going to try to get through the Green Swan document that we started. And then Jim wants to introduce you to these books he's been reading. He just constantly consumes information. I think Jim does. As Mike Moore of the Thomas Paine podcast tried to get Jim to launch his own podcast, I think he needs one at this point. Jim has at least 5,000 episodes ready to go in the can. Jim, it's great to have you back on the show. How was your weekend, sir? Weekend was good. It was relaxing. Uh, I didn't read too much, but I enjoy reading this stuff and yeah, I'm one and a half books further since our last conversation. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, that's that's the thing. I, I tell the audience I'm on a text chain with you and Maria Albanese, who's co-host of the Thomas Paine podcast on Fridays. And all of a sudden, we're talking about uh, what we're doing on the next show and have to work through these documents. Then all of a sudden, Jim fires over 324 screenshots highlighted of an entire encyclopedia. <laughs> and... Uh, it just it just never ends i mean but this is the issue that you run into jim maria does uh i know mike does i do a lot of people i work with when you just consume information all the time and then you want to share it with everyone it's like unless you have a show that you're talking 24 hours a day you can't really share all the information that you keep finding 
No, and I, I just want to make sure I'm not the crazy one in the coffee shop laughing when I'm reading this crap. <laughs> it's hilarious. That's what I told the audience. I said, you're always on the road, whether for business or personal. So you spend a lot of time in independent, privately owned coffee shops where yeah. you are trying to preach to the management and the employees, but using it as an opportunity to test out themes and narratives and bumper uh -huh. sticker slogans and get a feel for the streets. That's what I like to do. That's why I talk to a lot of the Instacart workers and the gig workers workers because i like to get a feel for people at the street level that aren't consuming all this how you break through in a conversation and explain some of this to them and warn them about it which i told the audience that we were going back and forth in text between you me and maria on you know this video series and a possible documentary and we're starting to figure out how to frame it uh to reach a younger audience because at the end of the day it's not really about you or me it's about uh, our kids our grandkids uh and those folks out there that are going to have to grow up in this system i think you and i can avoid the majority of this because we know what it was like to grow up without the internet and without uh all the smart technology so if we had to run away and, and live in a rural area we could last another 20 30 years it's the young kids unfortunately they're going to grow up inside of the prison system if their parents are raising them attached to devices all the time and who knows running around with a with a microchip in them that'll probably be coming in the next few years so uh, yeah. it's those guys that we have to try to wake up and warn that there is an alternative alternative to digital slavery they just don't know what it is because they didn't grow up in it right well and part of it was uh me having dinner with my daughter and telling her about some of this stuff i showed her one of the little video clips of the uh personless bank branch for bank of america that maria had shared uh, that little video and her first question was like what about all the jobs she's 22 and it clicks right away what about all the jobs? And then I explained to her about the McDonald's with, you know, completely robotic and uh, the frictionless grocery shopping and, and, and the gas station in Alabama that's got no employees. I'm like, this is what they want. And she goes, well, what are people supposed to do all day? I go, well, they just assume you're going to put you on your VAR headset and, and either go take a walk in nature or play video games all day and you're going to be happy. Yeah, She's like, that's crazy. So... I told her we were uh, get, uh, floated the idea of the video of buyer, and that's when she said, "You've got to get it on TikTok because all all young people have TikTok." And she showed me some of the videos that pop up on hers, and yeah, most of the kids aren't in. You know, they're not seeing the transhumanism stuff. They're not seeing the crazy stuff you found when you started oh doing research God. on TikTok. <laughs> I they're not seeing that. that i mean they're seeing like for her she's seeing girls like you know showing outfits or how to do yeah. makeup or some dance move or whatever you know that kind of crap but she would share it with everybody she knows and yeah. and then the world it, it'll just spread like wildfire yeah so i told i told the audience do. that i told the audience that i've avoided tiktok for the last whatever five six years it's been out and i went and set up an account the other night uh yeah. at dustin gold show i didn't put anything i just used it to get in there and i said so i start searching hashtags like you would do on twitter or facebook i said because i was starting mm -hmm. to try to run some analytics and so i'm looking up technocracy i'm looking up world economic forum transhumanism stuff that that, that if you went on uh twitter you'd find uh t lab and you'd find whitney webb people like that so i'm in TikTok, yeah. and i said I, I did not know there were actual people who are excited and can't wait to merge with machines and have a brain chip put in their head but i found them at TikTok. <laughs> 
was like, this was, it reminded me of, uh, if, if I visualize what an MK ultra torture chamber was like, where they're going to yeah. strap you down to a gurney with barbed wire and pin your eyes open with crocheting needles and force you to watch weird stuff on the screen. Like in the Manchurian candidate, this is whatever yeah. I stumbled upon. <laughs> I was like, this was some freaky freaky stuff I, the closest thing i found to like kind of an anti-establishment anti-government kind of narrative because that's sort of those are the kind that you're trying to hit those people it was a guy with lipstick on with a wig and he looks like a woman but then he's voicing over and he's going 9-11 is an inside job 9-11 is an in and i said this is what and and that video had more views than anything else i could find i'm like what am i watching this is the craziest stuff well, I've ever and seen. that's the thing i mean this is just a means to an end you know we're not trying to find an echo chamber we're not trying to find like-minded people we're trying to share it with young people and like we talked offline like you know there's not going to be any of that theatrical bullshit attached to the video it's going to be we like when it comes straight from their mouths or straight from their documents to wake people up that's the yeah you don't have to add all that theatrical stuff this stuff yeah. is crazy on its own i know well i was thinking to myself what do you want me to dress up as uh, Pee Wee herman get breast implants and run no. around on the screen with loud music blaring warning people about central bank digital currency because that might break through and whatever yeah I yeah <laughs> so was... so we're gonna we're gonna switch things up on people here today yeah we're gonna try to finish that green swan bis document but we're gonna read some shit from these two books uh one that i finished and one I'm, uh, i started and I'm about a third of the way through the second one. Um, but also, I found uh, this article yesterday uh, from Germany. But before that, I want to preface it with, so I'm down visiting my daughter. I, I leave the coffee shop I was in. And uh, there's these Tesla, there's like a mall behind the coffee shop, a mm -hmm. small mall. Um, and it's, a, it's an affluent area, um, this little area of the town. And so there's all the, there's, I think there's eight or nine Tesla supercharger stations. So mm. there's three Teslas sitting there charging. And it's a nice day. The one guy had his door open. I'm like, I got in the truck, I started it up and I debated, should I go talk to this guy? And then I'm like, ah, screw it. I'm going to go talk to this guy, you know, cause I just got done having the conversation with the coffee shop manager, which I'll, I'll share on there too. So I go over to this guy and I've gotten pretty good about asking questions without um being confrontational mm -hmm. so it doesn't go to left versus right climate change versus no climate change it doesn't go to there right so i walk up and i said hey how you doing he said hey, i'm good how are you i said i'm thinking about buying one of these things can i ask you a few questions <laughs> of course i'm not buying one of those but <laughs> he doesn't know that right and so i start talking to him and he's like yeah this is a 2022 and i said how long does it take you to charge he said, well, this is a Tesla supercharged station, so it takes about 20 to 30 minutes. But at home, it takes four hours. And, yeah. And, and then he explains that he's got the, like, super version Tesla, so it's got, like, a bigger battery or something. <laughs> and um, I said, well, what's the range? And he goes, well, this one can go 400, 450 miles. The smaller batteries can go, like, 300, 350 miles. And I had read the scientific study about how, you know, under 70 degrees, all of these batteries lose like 20 to 25% of their charge. Mm. And he, of course, he didn't know I'd read that. So I asked him if he's experienced that. 
And he's like, no, 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 I haven't noticed that at all. And I'm thinking in my head, okay, but you're only making 10-mile trips here and there every day. You don't know. You didn't take mm. a long-range trip in cold weather. Um, yeah. And then I said, well, how do you feel about this uh, automated driving thing? And uh, he's like, oh, it's so cool. You know, you can you can just put your hands on the wheel and put your ball cap down and go to sleep for an hour. And <laughs> as long as you plug in the, the destination, the, the car just takes you there. And I'm thinking – well, aren't you like worried about something? You know, shouldn't you at least be paying attention to the road in case there's a malfunction? And he's like, nah, I was worried about it in the beginning, but you know, you get used to it. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> like, well, that's a danger to everybody else on the road. Forget you. Oh my God. And then he starts to explain to me that the camera system in the inside the Tesla, he said his words, it's overly restrictive. If it catches you on your phone, that you get you get a warning and after three warnings tesla bans you from the automated driving for life <laughs> and i'm thinking this is how can people be this dumb you want automated driving which means you can be on your phone but they make you give you a violation for being on your phone but yeah. you can be asleep that's cool you just can't be on your phone yeah I know. Now, can you imagine, and I don't recommend people do this, but let's say you're a smoker and you want to smoke in your car with a kid in the car. Imagine your car being able to give you three warnings and then ban you from ever being able to drive again because you smoked in the car with your kid or, or like you were yeah. vaping in the car with your kid. I mean, imagine like you're, you're buying something for 40, 50, 120, I don't know what, I don't know what model he had, 120,000. 2022, could, he had a 2022. <laughs> that could ban you <laughs> from certain features because you violated yeah. Tesla's rules. I mean, come on. Well, and how do you not see that that's a digital slavery? They're, they're making the rules. You have to follow them. Yeah. Just like when I told Somebody in the coffee shop, I was talking about, I was, again, probing, and I wasn't really getting, uh, being able to get anywhere. So then I brought up um, the digital the digital prison in Colorado. I said, yeah, they put all these smart meters on all the homes and, and uh, apartment complexes so that they can, you know, you've got a digital thermostat. And with the smart meter, what happened in Colorado, I just, I tell them, I don't say this is what they can do. I just gave them the real world example, right? Yeah. Last summer, and during the heat wave in Colorado, the power company went into those digital thermostats and set it at 78. You could not cool your house under 78 degrees. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, hipster coffee shop dude was like, whoa, that's totally authoritarian. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> that's a, but and see, I just what... leave it at that. Let them go think. No, but what you're talking about is really important, and I, I've been able to do that for years, I think, growing up with my father as a private investigator and hanging out with him since I was one or two years old while he worked on cases, so I would watch my father in action gather intelligence without getting in fights with people, but playing right. dumb, sort of, con just like a good salesman does, conforming to they that person. You know. No, and, and you'll generally find people both on the right and the left, if, you, if you're at a family gathering, some people have this thing where it's like um, 
this level of narcissism where they just assume you are what they are. So like, uh, uh, you know, mm-hmm. someone who I did like just a, a political lefty will come up to me at a Christmas thing. Not, not now, but they used to, or they would say, Oh, you know, I heard you do an impression of Trump. You must hate him and want to shoot him in the face too. And you're like, what are you talking about? Like they just assume. And I see people on the right do that too. They get in conversations and they assume everyone uh, identifies with their ideology and you all share the same ideology and you're like a chest thumping patriot or whatever but see what you're doing is the right way to do it i do it that's what mike does where you start to converse with people and, and it's you're drawing information out of them which helps you refine your narrative later your argument your ability whether you're going to try to turn that into mass media content like a documentary or whether you're just doing it to spread the word with five or six people a day that you come in contact with and it's also important what you just said is because now you can give people so many real world examples of this stuff going on today you don't have to say this is what they're going to do 12 years from now because nobody believes that that's abstract but when you're able to say oh in africa they're doing this with cbdc you know it's able to give like a real world example of where this stuff is actually happening you know yeah and same coffee shop um we'll get to the the back to the car thing in just a second but same coffee shop uh was talk had started a conversation with the manager um asked them how many stores they had now because i know they're growing and so they've added a fifth fifth location two guys started it no debt no investors they started it you know and just grew one store at a time and this guy's managing i think the all all five um and so we just got to talking and he didn't know anything about cbdc he'd never heard of it and I, I just said, you know, I, I like to encourage small, small businesses to use cash. What percentage of your sales are, are credit card? He's like, oh, 90%. And I'm like, yeah, what are your fees? He's like, yeah, those are three and a half percent. He goes, but the, uh, the, the third party vendors are even more. I said, third party, like what? Like he goes like Grubhub, uh, DoorDash, et cetera. Those are all taken 20%. And I said, you know, the big banks don't really need this money and they're, and they're, they're criminals anyways, and which he almost everybody agrees with that. Yeah. Nobody argues that statement. So we started talking and I said, you know, I said, what's your, you know, what's your sales every month? And he's like, ah, uh, well for this store, it's like, you know, a hundred thousand a month. And I said, okay, well let's just do some math, you know, at 90% credit card sales, that's, you know, 45 uh, well three and a half percent so it's about three grand a month one store mm-hmm. that's you take it times five you're at fifteen thousand dollars a month that's a lot of fees and then if you can cut that by 20 percent, just by putting up a sign that says cash preferred and then explain the bank fees underneath it so i've seen some businesses where they'll put uh, a discount for cash. Others will put a surcharge for for credit for plastic. Mm. If you just put cash preferred and here's the fees to avoid these fees, it, it's non confrontational, right? You're not going to piss anybody off. Mm-hmm. Um, but by doing that, you know, you're taking twenty percent of fifteen thousand dollars a month, three thousand dollars a month. Mm-hmm. That's I said that's real money. You know that that could be somebody's salary, mm-hmm. and it kind of clicked. You know, he was like. Wow, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. And he did say they had the conversation of, of whether or not to go cashless. And they decided that that was discriminatory, that they were not going to do that. 
Now, what, Jim, what would, did you happen to ask, what would have been their reason to go cashless? Is it just because it's like a trend, a fad now, and it sounds trend, hip yeah. and cool? Yeah. It's just trendy yeah, they're and cool? Making it, they're making it trendy in, in, on, in the liberal world, if you will. Um, they're just making it trendy and easier and just sort of in that like, it's just in that like hipster bourgeois space. Like people think it's cool. (laughs) Well, it's, it's funny too, because you mentioned this is important. I think for folks that want to have this conversation with people, the majority of people look at the banks, the bankers, you know, wall street now as boogeymen. See the left, when they created the orchestrated Occupy Wall Street movement 10, 15 years ago back under Obama. See, that's still ingrained in their culture that they don't like the banks and they don't like Wall Street because they had the left-wing actors, the puppets, you know, the WWE wrestlers attacking Wall Street and the banks. It was generally the conservatives back then. We were trained, or I, I came from the right, was trained to be the ones cheering it on, going, no, Wall Street's awesome and corporations are people too. Like, we were told to say that. Now, really since but 2015, every- as the veils lifted, people that identify in the right now hate Wall Street and the banks. So the bankers are the best target when you're trying to talk to people about the evil guys behind the scenes that are stealing from everybody and trying to drive us into a slave system one it's accurate because we see it all coming out of bank for international settlements the international banksters and two the majority of people aren't going to defend the bank I mean, even the no. people that I had to talk to that worked at bank at Citibank, like the cashier and then this manager yeah. who worked there when my wife's money got stolen, they hate the bank they work for. <laughs> like That's they will tell you they hate. Ninety nine percent of the people, or I can't say that because there's five percent of the U.S. Poly, uh, uh, <laughs> don't have a bank account, right? So ninety five percent of the people, the, the remaining ninety five percent, at some point have been screwed over by either a bank, a credit card company, or a Wall Street firm. So, yeah, they all hate the banks. Yeah. It's like if you're doing comedy, you're talking about interacting with the government, and you write a joke bashing the DMV. The majority of people agree with you because the majority of people have had to deal with a DMV at some level. So a five-hour line (laughs) for nothing. yeah yeah but that's why you're right if people want to go out there and preach this stuff and start to experiment talking about these things to friends and family that they think are interested and want to know more talk about it from the perspective of the bankers rather than starting off a conversation talking about republican or democrat or conservative or liberal you you can't even define any of that stuff anymore the fact is it's you have the bankers at the international level that are trying to centralize power people in talking about new world order for years global government that's where it's coming from folks it's the bankers the majority of the system was put in place over the last hundred years through the central banking system and then in our country with the federal reserve banking system which is a central bank they've already been consolidating it they just want to take the next step now which is to manage you govern you all the way down to the last transaction that's that's what they want yeah, to do. I've gotten point. pretty good at the, you know having these conversations and never ever ever bringing up politics and never, ever, ever bringing up the green grift or or the climate hustle, um, but I'm started to get I'm starting to get good at the green grift and climate hustle without saying it's bullshit, mm. you because know, again that's confrontational to people that believe in the narrative, right? They've been hoodwinked, yeah. And so I point out the the, the obvious facts, some of which we've been through on your show, 
you know, that you got to find 42 times the amount of lithium and, and the scientists, are, this is the actual scientific data. And there's, you know, that nobody's going to, nobody that I've talked to disputes that. Um, but what they will dispute is, well, you can't argue. They'll say you can't argue the climate's, you know, not changing and humans aren't causing it, even though they've ne not read one scientific document or even right. not one review of a scientific document. So they have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. They just heard it on NPR or wherever, right? A hundred times, yeah, a hundred times a month they hear it, yeah. Right, right. But I think I found the exact way to phrase that enlightening moment. And it's on the back cover of the next book I'm going to read when I finish this one. <laughs> so let me grab that real quick and I'll show your audience. Hang on two seconds. All right. So Jim is going to go grab this book. He's got another book, folks. It's book after book. I told you guys a few episodes ago, Jim has a huge library and he constantly consumes information. And uh, when Jim gets into a book, he'll be 100 pages in completely highlighted like he's writing a term All paper. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so this right, book, back. the author of this book was in the documentary. Um, oh, shoot. Which was it? It was uh, not the global. Oh, it was. I'll, I'll get the name of it and I'll, um, I'll, I'll get it, text it to you later. We'll add it okay. to the show as a documentary where these environmentalists went around and they were trying to figure out if this, this solar and wind was really going to work. And they came to the conclusion that, no, it's not going to work. Well, here's the book. And that's called Green Illusions? Yep. And this is the author. The Dirty Secrets of Clean Energy and the Future of Environmentalism. Ozzy Ziner, Z-E-H-N-E-R. Yep. And on the back, it says... We don't have an energy crisis. We have a consumption crisis. And so I started using that in conversations with people. And the NPR folk all agree. You're mm -hmm. right. We don't have an energy crisis. We have a consumption crisis. And so there's where you can get in and start to wake people up. That, no, that's a great that's a great way to phrase it. Um, there was another thing that was similar to that. But no, it's great. It's like what I've talked about here. Uh, you know, we, because we've been driven into and engineered into sort of this consumeristic, materialistic society over the last mm -hmm. hundred years. And this has, again, this has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with capitalism. It has nothing to do with any of that. It's just we've been driven into this system. And that's why uh, Marie Albanese sent me a video that was making its rounds on Twitter. I think it was from uh, England. Some politician, younger guy. And he was he was attacking wokeness, right? I was listening to it. I was going, oh, okay, this is pretty good. Well, he gets to the end. And it was all a trap. And I don't think anyone ever is going to notice this except I did. The trap at the end was he said um, to the people of England, listen, woke kids, we can't stop climate change. We can't stop this. We only uh, put 2% of the CO2 in the air for the whole world. You know who's causing all the climate change problems? Poor countries. China, you know, Russia, uh, Africa. And then he starts talking about uh, Xi Jinping's story and how he grew up poor and now he runs China and he doesn't care about climate change. And then I said, where is this guy going with this? And finally, in the end, he goes, the solution is more technology we need to create this technology to govern how we do that i said to maria 
he did you send this to me because you notice he's he's creating the setup to drive self-identifying conservatives into a cbdc carbon credit-based system and she goes oh do you think that's what he was doing i thought it was a great speech i said he just he see the solution is never maybe get rid of some technology it's always more technology is going to fix the problems that they claim was created by technology tell me how a bunch of poor people out in an indigenous village are polluting with co2 versus the people living in an industrial consumeristic materialistic society with a throwaway plastic bottles how the hell are those poor people polluting more than we're polluting i was laughing i said you can't buy this this is crazy but you're right it's consumption not energy right and and the whole climate change thing is all about developing the south they mean these these elite corporate massive multinational corporation global corporations and, and the really elite they made money on, on developing the North. Now they want to develop the Southern Hemisphere. And they want to make sure there's enough resources to do so. Yeah. And they're, and they're telling you that if they go into these poor mud hut villages and they start building uh, mega warehouses and Amazon uh, warehouses and all this other stuff, that somehow that's going to help fight the climate change. And it's these poor people living in mud huts that are creating climate problems. I've like read some, I'm laughing. I'm like, you're going to try to tell me that if we turn their mud hut village into New York City, that somehow is going to fight the pollution that you guys are claiming is the problem? Yeah. It's almost like uh, the inflation numbers we get from the government. If anybody trusts those, you're an idiot. I read this in in an article the other day. Since 1990, okay, 32 years, right? Do you know how many times the Bureau of Labor Statistics has changed the math on CPI inflation? I only know because you sent it. I think it was 29 More than 24 times. (laughs) Yeah. In 32 years. Yeah. It's a, they, like I said to you, they changed the math and they've done it. They do it with all kinds of statistics. Uh, I pointed out to you under the Obama presidency, they were claiming because it was, uh, it was a big issue at the time. So they wanted to say the Obama administration was deporting more illegal aliens than any other presidency. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, you found out they changed the math. So they were taking people that were turned away at the border and counting those as actual deportations. This is the way the government works, folks. It's like four or two plus two equals four until the government says two plus two equals five. Then it equals five. It's all smoke and mirrors, man. It's all. And then, not, and then not only that, then they go and create the Common Core math system the last 25 years, and they actually teach kids that two plus two equals five. And then those kids end up working for the government. And you see how this works? <laughs> oh, yeah. The book I'm reading now, they talk about how they have to change the education system in the Southern Hemisphere to, to teach these people all about STEM science That's, technology and <laughs> it's yeah. interesting you say that because for a hundred episodes i've been talking about the uh, science technology engineer mathematician guys unfortunately are the ones that are helping build the technocracy yeah. whether they know it or not well in this 1995 paper industrial society and its future i've been reviewing where this author you know nailed exactly what's going on today and he was back then in 95 before stem was a term uh actually marie and i looked it up last night stem came about in about 2001 this guy in 95 was saying that the the government the state is pushing all these kids into science and technology engineering and math 
because those are going to be the worker bees that continue to help actually build the prison planet system that they're living inside. Like this guy warned of this and it's sad, but you wonder why there was a push for the last 25 years to drive everyone into STEM and into programming. And then, and then on top of it, then you have the Elon Musk of the world and stuff working to try to build AI to the point where it's going to replace all the computer programmers and people that were told to, told to go to school for this. So you're programming the AI that becomes your replacement. <laughs> It's yeah, it's just, no different than cashiers teaching you how to use a uh, uh, a self checkout line. Which, by the way, folks, I had to enter the matrix this past week uh, when I got home, and uh, I texted you, Dustin and Maria, that you know after an hour and a half in the matrix, I've had enough, <laughs> <laughs> and I had to, I was in an Aldi's for to get pick up a few things for Kelly and. Uh, I'm, I go and last time I was in there was like a year and a half ago or something. So, cause I never go. And I remembered there was two or three cashiers and, and then there's this lady helping these people at the self checkout line. I'm looking around trying to find a cashier line. Well, there was one, she was it, she was doing both, but the person she was helping at the cashier lane literally had like three buggies full of food and other things. So I'm like, yeah, I'm not waiting. I'm just going to use the self checkout. And yeah. so I go, and they've got the new self-checkout version where they've got that camera screen, you know, so they're, yeah. they're videoing you. And uh, and I'm laughing the whole time because I'm six foot four. It was videoing my chest. <laughs> so, the, so the AI facial recognition was a fail. Yeah. And that three-cart lady was probably like an Instacart worker, you know, uh, doing an order for $14. She was probably in there for three and a half hours. Oh, no, she had a lot of stuff, man. It was oh, crazy. It's, no, it's it's nuts. I mean, but yeah, that's how I look at it now. Whenever I have to go out and, and, and amongst town, it's like going into the Matrix. I'm like, I don't yeah. want to go. I Dude, just I had to go do into it. a Target also and, and going into the Target. I'm just looking around at the people in there and it's I'm just going, where? Where am I? Am I like a third world country? Where the hell am I? Oh, it, it is. It was a it was a complete shit show. And don't don't do you like do don't you feel? Uh, I mean, it's that it has gotten worse since like COVID land kicked off. Like it's it's worse now than it was three before three years ago. It was pretty bad before if you went into a Walmart, but it looks worse now to me. And people seem to be moving slower. Uh, I find a lot more incompetence now. And then, of course, we live I in got a culture. Somebody walked right in, in, into me. I mean, they're yeah. walking towards me on their phone. I just stopped thinking. You know, I didn't move. I just stood there. They literally walked right into me. Yeah, it's it's weird. And then, you know, when you're driving down the street, uh, I mean, I noticed this right after things started to open up after COVID land. I said, wow, they got to get everybody back in driver's school because this is terrible. But when you see people looking at their phone, most older folks, my father, the boomers, they'll think it's like a kid texting. I said, Dad, you got to remember, one out of five people on the road right now in America is doing some gig job. So they're driving around looking at their phone, trying to pick up their next yeah. DoorDash order, trying to grab their next Instacart order. They're driving to a location. I said, it's, it's yep. dangerous, man. Like People are driving around literally just staring right into their phone now. Yeah. That's why I you need a you, Tesla. Uh... I told yeah, I told you <laughs> offline. You know, my daughter didn't make a lot of money serving her lunch shift one day, so she wanted to go DoorDash, and she's done it off and on periodically for a couple of years, and she's averaged about twenty five, thirty bucks an hour. So she's like, "I want to go DoorDash." So we go. That's fine. We grab an early dinner. We go. First order. She's like, "Oh, this is weird. It doesn't show me what I'm going to make before I accept the order anymore." 
which was new to her. She hadn't done it in so long. She didn't know that it had changed. And so she, it was a small order. So she made like 350 or something like that. So we didn't think anything of it. Second order doesn't show her again. It's a big order from a, from a chain chicken restaurant chain. And uh, we deliver it and she makes another 350 and this message pops up. They're limiting her to making $10 an hour. And I called you because the look on her face was priceless, was like, what? Her eyes got real big. She was in total shock. She goes, that doesn't even pay for my gas. Now, we were in my truck, but she's like, and she's figuring it out real quick. Like, that doesn't even pay for my gas. She goes, forget this. Let's go get ice cream. <laughs> so no. I said, well, now you know. I, I explained what you had said on your show, Dustin, to her. And I said, now you know, and you need to tell all your friends. So on the way to get ice cream, she's texting all her friends about what she just experienced. Yeah, it's outrageous. I mean, I, I had said it on Mike's show two years ago, yeah, way before I yeah. started this show. I warned people. I said they have the ability, all of the gig apps, they have the ability to throttle folks. Um, and this is why I've warned people. The world that we're moving into now, it's not just service workers like Instacart grocery shoppers or your daughter doing uh, fast food delivery or restaurant delivery. It's not just the Uber and Lyft drivers. People like myself or Mike Moore that are doing podcasts, we rely on these platforms owned by the technocrats. And when you're making money on the public side, it comes from ad revenue. You have no idea if they're cheating you. They could turn off your ads at any point they want. You know, they did it to Mike. He's talked about it publicly. I used to produce yeah. for a guy on YouTube. He was making $8,000 a month on youtube ad revenue next month the check comes in for five hundred dollars and they won't tell them why it dropped from eight thousand to five hundred all a lot of creatives out there are selling their stuff on fiverr you're in america competing with some guy in india or china or somewhere else who's willing to take a dollar an hour and all of a sudden you got to drop from a hundred dollars an hour that you used to make to try to compete with a guy who'll do a logo for three dollars and 45 cents so you have fiverr then you have creatives selling on etsy you have people that used to do flea market world now they're all what an ebay facebook marketplace all these controlled environments and the majority of these companies are owned and controlled by the same venture capitalists backed by cia's uh, venture firm in and or going all yeah. the way up to the big bankers so this is part of technocracy that you're being driven into these internet ghettos where you're relying on them to make money and like with your daughter that's the first time i've heard where they actually told you you were limited to ten dollars <laughs> an hour with instacart all the people that do it know they're doing that because they'll hit a big order like $65, $70, $100 in the morning, and then their their app doesn't work for the rest of the day. They're not allowed to make any more money. So I, we knew this was going to happen, but if you actually start to look at um, some of the articles and white papers I covered here, the gig workers are actually one of the major targets of how they're going to introduce UBI because they're going to have all these people that don't work full-time jobs. And then they're going to say, we know you were making a uh, And a hole in the resume now. Yeah, a hole in their resume. And they're going to say, we know you were making $1,500 a week, and now you're only making $300 a week. Uh, but we're going to make this up with, they'll call it I don't know, a stimulus check, a gig worker stimulus. It'll have some creative name. And then, boom, universal basic income. It's like ripe for the taking. It's, it's really genius how they do it. Well, plus, like what we talked about offline, too, is taking all those younger, typically younger, uh, folks out of the service industries, you know, uh, wait staff, et cetera, you know, it takes them out of these restaurants. So you shut down a, a lot more. COVID shut down a lot of local and small businesses anyways. 
just with the lockdowns. You take away their staff and their employees, you're going to shut down even more. Exactly. And then the ones who survive, those are the ones that end up adopting because all of a sudden the profit, you know, shows up at your door knocking going, oh, you don't have any employees? Well, we have a new cashless QR code system where your customer just orders from the table and then a robot comes out of the back and drops it off. I mean, so we see a lot of the independent stores here in downtown Frederick, uh, independent restaurants that are doing that. And when you talk to the owners, they say they can't get employees. Well, what replaces the employees? Oh, the technology is there to save them. <laughs> and so you're like, yep. you can see it. This is such a well-orchestrated machine. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's, it's just amazing because when you do talk to the owners, like that manager you were talking to at the coffee shop, those people aren't waking up laughing in the mirror going, I'm Dr. Evil. I want to get rid of all my employees. Like, they don't wake up and think that. They wake up one day and they go, where the hell are all the good people that used to work for me? Where is everybody? Right. Right. And so, uh, you know, it's it's pretty crazy. Now, you want to look at this uh, article here that you had sent over on, yeah. the, on the water bottles? So back to EV cars. This is classic. No, we'll do the bottled water first. Okay. Okay. So this is an article. Uh, yeah, America runs on bottled water. It's the most popular drink in the country, and it has a 4,000% markup, people. 4,000. Wow. And it, uh, it's responsible for what? Tens of millions? I couldn't read it, the top first sentence. Oh, the most popular drink in America is sold at a 4,000% markup and is responsible for tens of millions of discarded containers each day. Bottled water. A day. And guess what, people? I've read, I don't know, 3,000 pages. I didn't read once about single-use plastic bottled water being a problem. Oh, in any of the uh, banker, yeah, any of the banker UN documents or any of that kind of stuff. I didn't read any of it. Oh, which reminds me also when I was in that matrix for an hour and a half, I went into a Panera bread for the first time in, I don't know, a year. And they had changed the, uh, the, the marketing. (laughs) So on the menu, it, it had this green stuff and where the coffees are it used to be like a dark brown or black backing with white lettering on the different like whether it's caffeinated uh dark roast light roast or whatever now it has a green backing and i sent you pictures of this right so so it's real and on the menu it's got a new it's got symbols at the bottom it's got a leaf symbol if it's vegan and it's got a fork symbol i've never seen the fork symbol that's Mm -hmm. my first time seeing that because i i don't really go in the matrix right so it's this fork symbol, and I don't go into chain restaurants. So I'm like, what is this? And I'm reading it. It said the fork symbol means that that particular item is climate friendly, according to the World Resource Institute. Yeah, then, I, think on, so I, I think on the sign, Jim, that you sent me, it actually said, um, like, it's a low carbon emitting produced food yeah low carbon emitting yeah hang on i got the picture still on my phone what did it say i was was laughing i was laughing so hard like no see i like when people go in there like a normal person and they look at the menu is this only there to further market us into believing this stuff is real are are there actually people that buy this like they actually believe it yeah, it says climate friendly with a green fork next to it. It's insanity. Climate friendly, 
says climate friendly, delicious, low carbon meals certified by the World Resource Institute. <laughs> yeah, low carbon meal. But here's the irony, people. I go, I get the, I get a, a little pastry, and uh, and I, they give me a. Uh, I said, do you have a plate? No, all they have is uh, is a bag, so they don't have a plate. And the utensils, plastic. Yeah, they exactly. only have single-use plastic forks right. to hand no, out. Well, and here's the thing. So if these companies all cared, they would have regular metal forks, and they would just right. run their dishwasher machine like they used to do in restaurants when I was a kid. It's like, come on, folks. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. If, if a Panera, I don't know what a Panera, I mean, they used to be a real hot uh, business to own 20 years ago. I don't know about now, but... Let's say you have 500 customers go through a Panera Bread in a day. That's uh, that's 500 forks and knives that get thrown away in the garbage. <laughs> I mean, serious. Least, yeah. yeah. It's, it's insanity. It says on but, that article. But the five, irony is that the symbol, the logo for the low-carbon meal is a, is a fork. Yeah. It's insanity. And it's, <laughs> you can't it's, make it up. That article says plastic bottles and plastic bottle caps are among the most common items to pollute the oceans. Yet yep. the U.S. has introduced few regulations to rein in their use. You know, I mean, so... because no, it didn't come from the BIS or the U.N., so they're not doing anything. And, and I mean, and so people know, I mean, they're, they're, the plastics are all petroleum-based. And so yep. when they're talking about all of their uh, fossil fuel stuff, yet it's okay because Pepsi and Coca-Cola are woke companies. So they're excused. Well, remember we read that article a couple, I don't know how many shows ago, we read that article from Coca-Cola and it said how many you know billions of bottled water uh, they produce a year. And the CEO came flat out, right out and said, we're not going to reduce that because people want it. Yeah. Here's the uh, other part that you wanted me to pull up. This was at ScienceDaily.com. It says reusable plastic bottles release hundreds of chemicals. Study finds. This was from February yeah. of last year. So that's plastic anything. I mean, it could be water. It could be soda, whatever. You know, just get stop using these, these plastic, you know, single-use plastic drinks. Yeah, and the other um, thing, I, and I just want to bring this up because we were talking about it, and this is just a life hack for folks. So if you don't care about you know, pollution and climate change and all this, and you're just going to drink your water out of plastic bottles and throw them in the garbage or whatever, one of the things you should think about, though, is what the plastic bottle is leaching into the liquid that you're drinking. So I was just actually talking to uh, Jim. I don't have an affiliate link for this, but I'm going to get one for the uh, Berkey uh, water filter because yep. I was asking him I was going to start filtering water and keeping it in glass bottles and storing it so Jim was saying he pre-buys like three or four months worth of bottled water to filter through the system um, but now he's looking for alternatives to getting the water in the plastic bottles now there is a company Jim because I, I heard them on another podcast who actually sells like filtered water in glass bottles but it's, it's so expensive that's why you have to do it yourself yeah. you'll go broke drinking it from uh, those guys yeah i was buying purified water in gallon jugs but it's plastic gallon jugs and you know filtering that through the berkey filter because i we thought that was safer than filtering tap water through it because mm. um, you don't know what's in the tap water but you know i, I gotta figure out another way to get the source purified water not in plastic containers 
Yeah. I mean, it'd be awesome if you were able to have like a giant tank, you know, with all with your water stored in it, and then you just keep running it through the filtration or system. Or a mountain constantly. stream and go move to the mountains, have a pure mountain stream in the back and just filter that. Oh, yeah, no, eventually. You'll just have to filter out all yeah. the silver iodide from the cloud seeding, <laughs> whatever's in the chemtrails. But listen, there's there, my, my whole thing is starting to figure out these systems um, for all these things and then getting as close to pure and as close to organic as you can as you can get you know that's the best you're going to do is getting as but my thing is like if you're going to do it uh you might as well do it once and might as well do it as close to the best as you can and then you don't have to keep buying new systems and you buy the wrong one and you don't like this one and you have to go get another one and um, that's why i was talking about with the audience uh, once we start doing gardening at a larger scale, I'm looking at figuring out how to do some of it indoors using uh, yeah. regenerated soils and filtered waters and stuff. Because yeah. my thing is, hey, if they're really cloud seeding and chemtrails are real, well, if I spend all this time and it takes me a few years to get a one acre piece of land going really good, what if that stuff just kills all my vegetables? Like what, what would be the point mm-hmm. of me putting in thousands of dollars and thousands of hours of right. time and creativity and energy to only have it be destroyed, you know? Right. right. All right. And then, uh, this one is on the, I know where he's going. I'm already laughing. <laughs> so I was reading this in the coffee shop and I literally was laughing so hard. I was crying. Cause this was, uh, the day after I spoke to the guy in the in the in the Tesla charging his car. So, all right, this is from the uh, the like energy finance minister of Germany. It's called the energy transition farce continues in Germany. Regulators fearing outages announced plans to ration power for environmentally friendly state promoted electric vehicles and heat pumps. The <laughs> subtitle is once again you can have intermittent windmill power. Or you can have you can put everyone in a battery powered car, but you cannot do both. <laughs> and then your note says geology survey of Finland thousand page report proved this beyond any doubt. We went over that I think in episode eighty eight. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you read so, that? I want to zoom in a little. There we go. There you go. So Klaus Mueller, the president of the German Federal Network Agency, which regulates gas and electricity, warned that the growing number of private electric car charging stations and electric-powered heat pumps could overload the power grid in Germany. Quote, if very large numbers of new heat pumps and charging stations continue to be installed, then we will have to worry about overload problems and local power failure, power power failures if we do not act. End quote. <laughs> so, the plans for electricity rationing are slated to come into effect on January first, twenty twenty four. Even in the event of power rationing, private charging stations would be able to draw enough power to charge an electric vehicle battery within three hours. For a range of fifty kilometers. <laughs> so, oh, let, let's put that into into perspective. So, it's going to take you three hours to charge your car, and you can only go fifty kilometers. You might yeah. as well get a bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's so funny because if you look this German minister up, I wonder if a year ago he was telling everybody to go out and buy electric cars. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So the article continues, and this is the best part. 
<laughs> the Ukraine war is a catastrophe, but it has done us at least one crucial favor by accelerating the German energy crisis. Because the truth is that we were always going to end up here with too many electrical things and too little electricity to power them. It was just supposed to happen two or three decades from now, long after the reigning cast of green luminaries had retired from public life. Instead, all of these clowns are facing the mathematically certain and long-predicted consequences of their false promises right now. And it looks like their most committed supporters will be the first to suffer for their <laughs> foolishness. That's that's actually funny. And, I, and do you think... This is being done intentionally, or do you think that is a glitch in their matrix, that this was a mistake? Because, as you've said, Maria Albanese said, Mike Morris said, um, in my opinion, I whatever they were trying to accomplish with COVID land, and that's synonymous with the Great Reset, it's really just this bridge period between the Third Industrial Era and Fourth Industrial Era, I think all of us agree they rushed it for some reason. No one knows why. There's different reasons that people think. I've heard Catherine Austin Fitz and others talk about their reasoning for it. Because in my opinion, watching people, how they reacted during COVID land, I think the system could have got away with a lot more if they were prepared to actually do it. They just, I don't think, were, were prepared. I think when they rolled out the vax like a year later, if they had rolled out the vax three days into COVID, I think they could have got 90% of the world to line up for that thing. But there's a lot of stuff they missed. So do you think this is now an unintended consequence of them trying to rush? Or do you think this is part of... The cis, like they're actually collapsing it intentionally. What do you think? They clearly didn't want to, in my read, okay, this is just my opinion here. This is not based yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, I'm read. just asking your opinion. Yeah. My opinion here is that they are losing control of the narratives very quickly. I'm starting to see CBDC, anti CBDC articles pop up all over the place. Mm -hmm. and it's not going to be I my gut feeling is it's not going to be long before the green grift articles start to pop up I've seen a few but they're they're not anywhere uh, near the level of CBDC everybody's talking about CBDC now everybody a year and a half ago nobody was talking about it and do um, you think do you so think that that do you think that's just because they didn't push it out? fast enough in as seamless a fashion and they went out there and they talked about it too much at places like well, world economic forum dance, panel right? discussions push, and so yeah if they push too fast then the pitchforks come out and they know that so they have to try to slow roll it and look again just my opinion they're going to do this in the next generation or two that's when the trap's going to be sprung. I, I don't see it being my lifetime, maybe not my kids' lifetime. Now, my kids are in their mid-20s, to you know, mid call it, right? I, I'm not sure it's going to be their lifetime, or at least not until they're my age and have kids of their own. It's, it's more, that's what they, they know this. So how far they get is how far they get. They're still putting all the cameras up. They're still putting all the sensors up. They're still doing all that. It's not like they're going to have to go and take it all down. I, they were no, never no. going to get the whole world on EV cars anyways, because we've already proven there's just not enough materials to do it anyways. Right, right. And it, there's so so few, you're talking, you'd have to have, what, I don't know, 70, 80, 90% of the population uh, using public transportation or walking. That's not happening either, right? Yeah. 
And, and the way they on the way they operate when they're pushing the uh, propaganda and the mind control um, is even if even if there's a large and, and they, you saw this in the BIS documents, I saw this in the old technocracy documents. I'm seeing some of it in the '95 paper, Industrial Society: Its Future. Even if the real numbers were 70 percent of the world use common sense and say, "Wait a minute, the sky isn't neon green." They still send Fauci out on TV who goes, listen, the sky is neon green. They just keep doing it no matter how much pushback because they just have to create this illusion for you, even though you're using common sense, to believe that your neighbor believes the sky is neon green. That's that's just how they continue to force people with propaganda. And I think they get people to be afraid to talk to others and go, wait, does this CBDC make sense to you? Does this make sense to you? They just keep the illusion alive by continuing to talk about it, whether you know there's a majority of people that figured it out already. For instance, like all the athletes dropping dead on the field. I mean, I think we can draw a correlation as to why that's going on but yet they'll put fauci out there and just goes athletes dropping dead on field have nothing to do with it you know it's like they, they just keep the illusion going it's a, they're really good at that well we've talked about i suspect that they know it's not going to work and they're going to point the finger at the serfs you know us and say look you didn't do enough to fit, solve climate change so now we're going to have to force a carbon credit system on you. Yeah, and Either that, way, that actually makes a lot win. of sense. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense because they definitely they they are always able to spin the narrative. I think what they're up against, though, and and this this comes out in that article you just showed, is that there's so many moving parts. Like we think we're fighting back when we're chasing yeah. fires. These guys have to manage so many moving parts as well. I think that's the importance of why they're collecting so much data on everyone through your phones, through the cameras everywhere, you know, through your interactions with the internet. Because as Yuval Noah Harari, yeah, but as Yuval Noah Harari, the king philosopher of the uh, World Economic Forum and um, the Fourth Industrial Revolution says, those who control the data are the gods of the new era. So they're constantly collecting all this analytics on us to see our reactions and then it allows them to come up with their real-time manipulation campaigns this is why i tell people uh, and i mentioned in the show yesterday i think people's goal if you're serious about not wanting to be part of the system you're not going to break the whole system you break the system by actually exiting the system so i said one of the things i'd focus on over the next couple of years of your life is making a promise to yourself i'm only going to use technology when i'm doing it for business when i have to go in and go make analog. money yeah go when, analog. The, the rest of my life and personal life i'm going to go analog like i said to my wife when we take willie g to the beach and go camping this summer i said we're going to leave our smartphones at home uh, I can't shoot really 35 millimeter anymore because it's hard to get film developed. I said, but I'm going to bring my digital camera. And if I want to shoot pictures, in the, I'm using the camera. I'm not going to bring my phone. I'm not going to be connected yeah. to the Internet while I walk around. And I think that's what people, if you make that decision, you go, yeah, I'm not going to do the tech stuff when I'm in my personal life. That's how you start to break the system because you're no longer yeah. contributing data to these people. You're no longer contributing all of the analytics and helping build a digital footprint price right. file Shop on Local, go analog, shop local, use cash. I mean, that's the simple stuff. We'll get into the details later, but that's the simple stuff. You know, yeah, um, yeah it doesn't mean you have to be 100%. I went into the matrix last weekend. 
or this past weekend for an hour and a half, you know, of yep. course you have to, everybody has to, but if you're 75, 80, 90% out of the matrix, that's good enough. That, that's you just what have I, to get yeah. more people doing it. Well, that's the, that's what people should focus on instead of getting hung up on electing people and you're going to change the system and we need a revolution. The revolution is waking up one of your friends and getting one of your friends to wake up one of their friends. And it's the beginning of starting to remove this going, you know what? Okay, I see the Amazon ring cameras. I, I got sold into the perceived convenience of being able to check my driveway while I'm at work. But you know what? I lived without an Amazon ring camera for 40 years. I don't need an Amazon ring camera because what it's really doing, it's spying on you, your family, and everyone else who comes in and out of your driveway. That's what it's actually doing. So the it's ring like, camera is the warden for your own prison at home. <laughs> Right, exactly. So I think if you could start to get rid of these things, that's, that's a the major guard, step. The ring camera. <laughs> right. The, the revolution is actually starting to remove the unnecessary technology from your life. That's the actual revolution. Look, uh, somebody that asked me the other them. day, I was talking about all this stuff. Somebody asked me, how do you have time to read all this stuff? And Well, first of all, my kids are grown, so I don't have that, right? But I turned off the news a long time ago, years ago. Stop paying a politician to paying attention to anything in D.C., like literally nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, I might read a document like the Biden administration did an EO uh, executive order on uh, 30 by 30, which we're, we're going to connect all those dots to. But anyways, I stopped paying attention to that. I don't watch regular TV. Somebody asked me this yesterday. Are there any NFL games on? I, I, I'm like, I don't know. I don't watch it. <laughs> I don't have a clue. Who's yep. playing? I, I couldn't tell you, man. I, I don't have a clue. Now, I, I played soccer. I still watch, uh, you know, English soccer. But I go down to the local English pub to Rob's place so I can patron him and watch the game that I want to watch because he's got it streamed, right? Mm -hmm. I don't watch TV. I'll watch some documentaries. Uh, but that frees up a lot of time. A yep. lot of time. You have no idea until you do it. You literally think you're only watching an hour a day or whatever, but you, you're always on your phone. You're always looking up articles in, in that world. And when you stop doing it, you have a lot of time. Definitely, definitely. And if you stop messing around on uh, Facebook and other unnecessary things, that's why even for yep. me. I left for, Twitter. I was only there yeah. like seven months. For me, for years, whether it was the uh, this political stuff or the corporate comedy I was in, I only used social media as marketing tools. So we, even yeah. when I was in the corporate comedy world, uh, a lot of the comedians I had, they were making their money doing events uh, for corporations. And they would say, oh, I want to build a big YouTube. I said, well, go do that on your own because the companies aren't looking for us on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter. If you want some account that because for your ego, then go build that on your own time. That's not part of like the services that I'm offering you because we're not yeah. selling ticketed events. So but if you, if you get off of that stuff and then you see people all the time, generally people over 45, you see them at the restaurant and you go look at their phone. They are sitting there scrolling through their Facebook timeline, looking at, what their friend is doing, their uncle, some person they've never seen before, some fake propaganda out of Ukraine-Russia war situation. Like You're like, that person, literally, I watch them for 25 minutes, and they probably do that 10 times a day. That's six hours out of their day. <laughs> yeah. My dad has Fox News on all the time. That's my I, I can't tell you how many times I've told him, you could get Jesus elected and nothing would change. <laughs> 
so why are you watching this? And he just looks at me. He doesn't have an answer to that, by the way. <laughs> There's no comeback because yeah. he knows it's right, it's true, but he still watches this crap. And, and my mother's the- sitting in the in the chair next to him on her on her iPad, and she's scrolling through, like you said, Facebook. And the other day, last time I was up there, I, uh, I there was a picture of like a, a group of people, and I said, "Who's that?" She goes, "I don't know. It's just Facebook." And I'm like, "Then why are you watching it?" <laughs> Like, why are you looking at this? And then, <laughs> why are you? And the, and the crazy Total strangers. Thing, well, it's like, it's like Maria Albanese texted the other day. She said to me, uh, the, the more uh, technology we have, the less freedom we have. And, and then in, in the, my review of Industrial Society and its Future, this 95 paper yesterday, I was talking about Maria, and then I end up on this section, and that's what it was all about, was about the more technology that's introduced, the more freedom that you're losing. You just don't realize that that's what's happening. And I've said to people from the beginning, it's always about selling you perceived convenience. You know, it's convenience, yep. it's convenience. Well, convenience is you're selling out your human autonomy. Um, it's just like with you. I mean, you, you, with all the printed books you have, you know, short of a fire, um, you know, you have all the printed books, but when you buy the books, I don't buy digital books because, um, I, I, like years ago when the iPad first came out, I was like, Oh, that's cool. Then I started saying, well, what happens if the cloud goes down or what happens if my iPad breaks and I don't have two grand to buy a new one, I'm not going to be able to read these books anymore. Uh, then on top of it, if I want to lend it to somebody, I can't even do that. I can't lend them a copy of my book because I don't actually have it. I just have a digital copy inside my inside my uh, tablet. You know, it, it's it's crazy. Uh, yeah, my right. daughter was looking at all these books that I bought over the last few years, and uh, and this is coming from somebody who you know I'll admit it. I was a math guy. I hated reading. I mean, I did reading for like financial planning and the the business that I was in. But I hated just reading, reading, right? Mm. Uh, I just, I didn't enjoy it. Now I, I, I thrive on it because it's almost like I have this insatiable desire to absorb and learn material. Mm. So I, I actually enjoy it. It does help my business also. But I'm learning stuff. My daughter's looking at all these books. She's like, she's like, why do you have all these books? <laughs> and she knows I don't read like fiction novel crap. And I said, well. A, I, want, I do plan to read them all and get to them and learn. <laughs> but, you know, B is that they're to pass down to you so that you can have them and learn and read them yourself and educate yourself. It'll always be in the family. If they if they ban these books at some point, we have them. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is that they decide they don't want to use them for that purpose. You know, when you're gone... 25, 30 years from now, at least your family will have uh, a pretty large amount of toilet paper. So. <laughs> right. Or kindling, or kindling starter, starter kindling. firewood. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So, I mean, it's multi-purpose. That's what you got to tell her. You know, 20 yeah. years from now, we might not have toilet paper anymore. Um, all right. So we're going to go jump over to this Bank for International Settlements green swan document that we've been working yeah. on over the last couple of shows. You want to get into it? uh, I think I want to just pause that there and let's jump into the rightful science. Folks, we're going to switch it up because this stuff in these two books is so good. Uh, I think we're going to throw you a curveball and we're going to drop, I don't know, 50 pianos (laughs) on the whole narrative. All right. So up on the screen, we have this book. This is now. This was the second book that you started. Uh, The first. 
the first one. Okay, this is the rightful place yeah. of science. Disasters and climate change. Roger, hold on, folks. I'm going to zoom in here for the video. Yelke, Roger, uh, he he's a he's a professor. We I mentioned something about this book before. I held it up before, and this is the the scientist that we talked about on two shows ago, I think, or one, I don't know, the last episode. That uh, he believes in climate change. You know, I read all those questions, and he's like, "Yes, yes, yes, it exists. It just doesn't cause the the disaster damage is not caused by." human-driven climate change because it's just it's more about people moving to the path of the hurricanes or whatever right that's okay. just that's this book so we're going to read uh I, I told you i told the audience that um in this book he referenced the science about how uh, extreme heat um tropical cyclones which is hurricanes floods tornadoes drought none of that is caused by human related climate change and the data backs it up. I mentioned that on the show. Well, this is the this is the chapter. It's chapter five, and everything in here, as he, as I have under, underlined, perfectly coincides with the findings of the IPCC. Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and flip the page. Zoom in so I can read that uh, top part. If you could move it. Let me see. Hold on one second, because I'm trying to see if I can move this around the way that this works would you would you be able to open your copy and uh yeah yeah read for the book and, okay. and i'll keep this up i'll just on the screen read it. for the audience okay i'll just read it so um so the top portion there it's it's a dutch researcher Lawrence bauer wrote a review paper summarizing much of the literature on disaster losses and climate change available at the time this was 2011 that review paper concluded quote the analysis of 22 disaster loss studies shows that economic losses from various weather-related natural hazards, such as storms, tropical cyclones, floods, and small-scale weather events, such as wildfires and hailstorms, have increased around the globe. The studies show no trends in losses correlated for changes in population and capital at risk that could be attributed to anthropogenic, which is human, climate change anthropogenic is uh it means i looked it up it means human caused therefore it can be concluded that anthropogenic human caused climate change so far has not had a significant impact on losses from natural disasters that's 22 studies folks hey and jim just a quick question for you because you see this come up obviously the last 30 years with the climate change hoax so when they talk about human caused climate change they're not just talking about uh gases emitted from like a human being physical body they're talking about all of the industrial industrial, technological the industrial system. co2 right, right 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 okay go ahead and scroll to the next next one we don't need to read the bottom of that okay um, this is page uh, 57 that we have up here yeah, so at the bottom there, I don't have it highlighted, but it says, uh, with respect to attribution, the IPC surveys a large number of modeling studies which try to disentangle human forcing of the climate system from ongoing climate variability. The AR5, which is an IPCC report, concludes from this research, quote, new results suggest more clearly the role of human-caused forcing on temperature extremes compared to the results of the time of the CREX assessment we assess that it's very likely that human influence has contributed to the observed changes in the frequency and intensity of daily temperature extremes 
on the global scale since the mid 20th century. Well, that means 1950. Okay. Mm. So they're not going back far enough. We've proved that in a couple of uh, documents so far. All right. Uh, we can skip that page. All right. All right. Page uh, 59. In extreme precipitation and flooding, are extreme precipitation and flooding the same thing? A common confusion is that an increase in extreme precipitation necessarily implies or is indirectly associated with an increase in flooding. This is incorrect. <laughs> Keep going. Next page. Tropical cyclones. Okay. A 2014 paper, in a 2014 paper, we found that U.S. hurricanes are responsible for almost 70% of the overall increase in disaster losses since 1980. Okay. Well, when you go to the next page, we have normalized U.S. hurricane damage 1900 to 2017. Okay. That's mm -hmm. the graph if you want to zoom in a little bit. That's the graph. Okay. Okay. On the next page, you've got 4.2. That, that is the graph of U.S. hurricane landfalls 1900 to 2017. Okay. The paragraph mm -hmm. above it, it says a far more sophisticated check is to compute compare trends and the incidence of hurricanes with trends in damage, because counts of hurricanes and measures of their strength are independent of damage estimates. They can serve as a basis for evaluating the appropriateness of our adjustments. Logically, we would expect that trends in normalized damage and trends in hurricane incidents would go up in the same directions. It turns out that they do match up almost perfectly. <laughs> Below the graph, it says, the graph above, meaning this 4.2 that's on the figure, shows the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's, NOAA, count of U.S. hurricane landfalls from 1900 to 2017. It shows no evidence indicating that hurricane landfalls have increased since 1900, a <laughs> finding that holds if one starts the analysis in 1851 when NOAA's data set begins, or 1950. <laughs> there is an upward trend if the count is arbitrarily started in 1970. That All right, yeah, you're on the next page. So if they mm -hmm. start the data in 1970, you'll see, see an increase. But if you go back further, no, you don't. Uh, reading a little further, the graph below shows the U.S. landfall intensity data. So not just the number of landfalls, but the, in, the category three and up. From 1900 to 2017, there is no upward trend since 1900, consistent with the trends in normalized losses. There is simply no upwards trend in the data since 1950. But there is if you start in 1970. Below the graph, it says the data show that hurricanes have not increased in, in the U.S. in frequency, intensity, or normalized damage since 1900. Yeah, and you know what's terrible about all this? It goes to show you the liars, the grifters, the scammers, and the schemers have a much easier job than the people trying to tell the truth. Because for you to boil this down, to have a 10-minute conversation with some kid who was indoctrinated at college and listens to NPR and try to explain the truth to him, it takes a while because it's actually based on real science. <laughs> but when right. you're using fake science and propaganda, it's very easy to just lie to people over and over until they accept the lie. Now trying to deprogram right. with them with the truth is very, very difficult. 
Right. And so all we hear out of the IPCC is that storms have increased in frequency and intensity. That's all we hear out of them, right, out of the UN. But these are the IPCC's own words coming up next, folks. In their SREX report, they said, quote, there is a low confidence in any observed long-term, i.e. 40 years or more, increases in tropical cyclone activity, i.e. intensity, frequency, duration, after accounting for past changes in observing capabilities. Quote, the IPCC AR5 reaffirmed this. Quote, current data sets indicate no significant observed trends in global tropical cyclone frequency over the past century. In summary, this assessment does not revise the SREX conclusion of low confidence that any report reported long-term increases in tropical cyclone activity are robust after accounting for past changes in observe, observing capabilities. They go on to say the IPC agree, IPCC agrees with respect to observed damage. Most studies related uh, increase, increases found in normalized hurricane losses in the U.S. since the 1970s, okay, which we already know, to the natural variability observed since that time. Uh, Bauer and Botson demonstrated that other normalized records of total economic and insured losses for the same series of hurricanes exhibit no significant trend in losses since 1900. Now, Jim, let me ask you this. Who is his audience? Like, um, who was this book written for? Um, I, I don't remember. I did read it. But this is the guy that testified in front of Congress, congressional committees multiple times. But, I mean, do you think this is written for, hopefully, other scientists uh, to read? It, it says it in the beginning of the book. I, I don't remember. Mm -hmm. It's probably other scientists. But, anyways, figure 4.4, global tropical cyclone landfalls. As you can see, folks, there's, uh, there's no trend. There's no hockey stick chart here like Al Gore wants you to believe. So in 2012, I, the author, was part of a research project that looked at trends in the number of tropical cyclones that made landfalls around the world. We found that there have been no significant trends up or down in global tropical cyclone landfalls since 1970. <laughs> uh, or in the overall number of tropical cyclones. The graph above shows the data, which is the one we just looked at. The collaborator, our collaborator, Ryan Maui, uh, has analyzed data on tropical, uh, total tropical cyclone activity worldwide since 1970. That data can be seen below, uh, no, page 66. You're on the wrong page. 66. All right, hold on. Now, some of these, uh, the way it, there we yeah, go. Yeah, that one. Yep, 4.5. Total count of tropical cyclones and tropical storm and hurricane strength, strength 1970 to 2017. It, folks, for, for those that you don't have, they're just audio, it's a band. It's just sideways. Just like all these other charts, it's up and down, up and down, up and down, but overall trend is slightly down or flat, nothing up. So they quote below the data, the chart, it says, there is simply little evidence to support claims that tropical cyclones or hurricanes have become more common or intense on climate timescales, a conclusion that is strongest for land-falling storms. It is thus no surprise that normalized loss studies have also failed to find increasing trends. Wow. The bottom line on tropical cyclones, there is no evidence to suggest that hurricanes have become more common, intense, or costly for any reason other than more people and their property are in the locations vulnerable to their impacts. 
Wow, that's okay. interesting. That's piano number one on hurricanes. Number two on floods. Uh, in summary, the IPCC AR5 concludes, quote, in summary, there continues to be a lack of evidence and thus low confidence regarding the sign of trend uh, in the magnitude and or frequency of floods on a global scale. Now, isn't that interesting? Because every time it rains really hard in California, what's all over the news? Climate change. <laughs> floods. Oh, no. Floods. <laughs> it's, the, it's climate change related. Lies. Outright lies. Well, the other, the other thing, too, Jim, is what the hell? I mean, how are we to know? When all of a sudden they claim that it's raining so much and there's floods and stuff, how are we to know they're not cloud seeding since we know they cloud seed? How, how do we know that that's not created? Right. I mean, I mean, that's what I ask myself. I mean, it's a serious question. If all of a sudden they say, oh, Colorado has had more snow this year than they've ever had before, that's climate change, I'd go, well, you have a thousand cloud seeding machines out there that make it snow. How do I know you just didn't turn the freaking machines on and then tell me that it was climate change that made it happen? Right. Well, in the, the recent rains in California, I read, you know, in what, in a weekend, they wiped out the extreme drought for, uh, uh, situation. <laughs> so much rain. It's unbelievable. But so they do so much tampering. Like, you can't trust anything. Like, between the lies and then the actual tampering they're doing, how yeah. do you know what's real? Yep. Scroll. Uh, you might not have it. So, page 68, They go on, the author goes on to say, uh, oh, this is the authors for the IPCC. Despite the diagnosed extreme precipitation-based signal... <laughs> And it's possible linked to climate, the changes in flood patterns. No gauge-based evidence had been found for a climate-driven, globally widespread change in the magnitude frequency of floods during the last decades. The authors concluded their analysis with a plea to focus attention on more important issues than establishing a linkage between greenhouse gases and flood gases and flood trends. Quote. There is such a furor in co of common concern about the linkage between greenhouse forcing and floods that it causes society to lose focus on the things we already know for certain about floods and how to mitigate and adapt to them. Blaming climate change for flood losses uh, makes flood losses a global issue that appears to be out of control of regional and national institutions. The scientific community needs to emphasize that the problem of flood losses is mostly about what we do on or to the landscape, and and that will be the case for decades to come. <laughs> in other words, yeah. In other words, you don't have the cover crops on farms, so the soil erodes, and yeah, there you go. Exactly. Yep. Yep. All right. Now we're going to get into tornadoes. Piano number three. Uh, figure four point six: normalized U.S. tornado damage, nineteen fifty to two thousand seventeen. Uh, folks, there's no trend there. There's three or four outlier years where they had a lot of them, uh, a lot of damage. But other than that, pretty normal to trending down. So we read the figure above shows an estimate of how much tornado damage would occur in the United States if each year's tornadoes occurred with the levels of population and development of 2017. The worst year for damage was 1953. But 1965 and 2011 are, are not far behind. In terms of loss of life, 2011 with 560 deaths, 
saw the most casualties since 1925 when 794 people died. Overall, however, the United States has seen a long-term decrease in both property damage and loss of life related to tornadoes. Again, what happens in the summer when a tornado rips through Oklahoma? What's all over the media and the news? Climate change. <laughs> yeah, I was there uh, in Tennessee, actually. I think right before COVID land kicked off, they had one come through. It yeah. uh, messed up some buildings. Everyone was out there helping fix the damage. And mm-hmm. then COVID land happened, and everyone went back inside and hunkered down and they forgot to help the people <laughs> but i remember them yeah, talking so, about climate change all over the news that's what it was yep so the, the author here in the book r- writes that the average annual losses for the entire 68 year period <laughs> across the united states for tornadoes um was 5.8 billion dollars in 2017 dollars however the first 34 years so the first half of that 68 year period of the data set, the annual average was $7.6 billion. Since 1983, a period of 34 years, uh, the a- annual average has only been $3.9 billion, a drop of almost 50%. The IPCC explains that the quality of the data makes any conclusions about long-term trends problematic. Quote, there is a low confidence in observed trends in small spatial-scale phenomena such as tornadoes and hail. In our analysis, we concluded that the data are suggestive of an actual decline in tornado incidents. <laughs> Boom. All right, piano number three, done. Now, drought. You ready for the next one? As with tropical cyclones, floods, and tornadoes, there is little evidence to support claims that drought has increased globally on climate timescales. The IPCC concluded, quote, there is a medium confidence that since the 1950s, some regions of the world have experienced a trend to more intense and longer droughts, in particular in southern Europe and West Africa. But in some regions, droughts have become less frequent, less intense, or shorter, for example, in Central North America and Northwestern Australia. For the United States, the 2014 National Climate Assessment concluded, quote, There has been no universal trend in the overall extent of drought across the continental United States since 1900, end quote. The IPC summarized its findings on drought, uh, reaching a conclusion of low confidence. Quote, there's not enough evidence to support medium or high confidence of attribution of increasing trends in human-caused forcings as a result of observational uncertainties and variable results from region to region, combined with difficulties described above in distinguishing decade, decadal scale variability in drought from long-term climate change, we conclude, consistent with the SREX, that there is low confidence in detection and attribution of changes in drought over global land areas since the mid-20th century. In addition, the IPCC also concluded that recent drought uh, in the United, Western United States that was highlighted by the U.S. Uh, NCA, which is that uh, National Climate Assessment, mm-hmm. could not be attributed to human-caused climate change. <laughs> Quote from the IPCC, recent long-term droughts in Western North America cannot definitively be shown to lie outside the very large env- envelope of natural precipitation variability in this region. 
particularly given new evidence of the history of high-magnitude natural drought and pluvial episodes suggested by paleoclimatic recurrence reconstructions. There is little evidence provided by the IPCC to support claims that drought has become more frequent globally on, a cli on climate timescales. Furthermore, there is also little evidence in support of claims of attribution of causes for trends in regional drought. In other words, folks, from a scientist that believes in climate change and the IPCC, none of these events are caused by human-caused climate change. Now, let me ask you, uh, since you read this, and you because you brought that up a couple times, just so it's not confusing for the audience, he believes in climate change. Yeah. He does not believe totally. in human-caused climate change. No, he believes in human-caused climate change. He does not believe that he that the increases in like dollar amounts for damages is okay. caused by human caused climate change. That's the only thing he doesn't believe. He okay. believes everything else. But he but he believes there's an increase. Well, he doesn't believe there's an increase in hurricanes and all these things because of human caused climate change. Correct? Or he does? He does. But the, yeah. he's writing in the book. The data says it doesn't. So how does he believe it if he says the well, I'll go back he, and read the question. Well, no, that's where but, I'm no, no, that's where I was confused. If he says that the data doesn't show that, then how does he actually believe it? I know. I know, I get it. This is chapter two, the scientific questions addressed here. <laughs> no, I know, but okay. I'm asking you what your opinion after I, reading I, this. I know. I don't I can't explain it. He talks out of both sides of his mouth like twenty times in this book. Oh, the book's okay, only 100 okay. pages long. Oh, no, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't confused. Okay, so that's basically how wow. he is, right? He He's like Trump. Yeah. He flip-flops back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, now that makes sense to me because I was sitting here going, with all this stuff this guy has written, how is he believing it? Maybe he just says he believes in it to give himself credibility in that to hopefully get other scientists to read this who believe in it and then go, wait a second. The data yep. proves that it's not true. Maybe he just says that as a way to get his foot in the door. Well, and then there's another, the, the, uh, the bottom of page 73, it says, perhaps surprisingly, since 1900, U.S. heat wave magnitude is down. What do we hear every freaking summer on the news? Yeah. Oh, record days over 90, hottest year since whenever. It's climate change. It's human-caused climate change. There's no science to back it up. None. No. It's called the Weather Channel. That's what it's called. Flip over to 74. You got three graphs. Trends for cold spells, warm spells, and heat waves in the United States since 1900. Folks, for those that are on the radio only, the lines are going down. Mm -hmm. So 1900 had more cold spells, more warm spells, and more heat waves. <laughs> Wow. Okay, so page 75. Yet such overwhelming evidence is no match for those wishing to tell a different story. For instance, a New York Times article on the release of the 2017 National Climate Assessment mischaracterized what the report concluded. Quote, this is from the article, In the United States, the report finds that every part of the country has been touched by warming from droughts in the southeast to flooding in the Midwest, end quote. In the article, Pennsylvania State University professor Michael E. Mann 
also mischaracterized what the report actually said. Quote, whether we're talking about unprecedented heat waves, increasingly destructive hurricanes, epic drought, and inundation of our coastal cities, the impacts of climate change are no longer subtle. They are upon us. That's the consensus of our best scientists as laid bare in this latest report. <laughs> this is coming from a Pennsylvania State University professor that I guarantee you this was quoted all over the media. And he at, and then the author of the book simply says in the next sentence, the report simply does not say what the New York Times and, and Professor Mann says it, that it says. In other words, here's yet another example of pathological business as usual on the science of climate and extreme weather events. They lie, they spin. Yeah, hey, let me ask you one more question, just to clarify this for myself here. When you start off reading his book, right, mm -hmm. what does he actually... Like, what does he say he's trying to prove here? Like, what's his thesis? That climate change is real, but there's a lot of hucksters out there? Like, what is his, what is his message? I'm trying to find it here. I wrote this short volume in 2014 for those interested in understanding the science of disasters and climate change. Four years later, the need for such a book is as great as ever. In the second edition, I've updated the data and the analysis while also reporting on my own experiences in the debate over climate change during this period. So he's basically just trying to set the science straight. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, this is interesting, because in Chapter 6, it's called What About Climate Policy and Politics? Yeah, well, and I, re and I remember in the beginning, uh, last episode or the one before, you had read the, the list that you had just pulled up, and he says in there that he supports a carbon credit system and more extreme measures than that. Um, he doesn't necessarily support carbon credit system, um, but he does believe in coercing people. We talked about that. Where He mentioned that uh, you know the, the purpose of a debate is to not convince the other person to think like you. Yeah. Um, but then he goes on to say, well, if people don't don't wake up and do what they need to do, then we have to force them to do it. That's what I'm saying. I don't understand. It seems like this book discredits the entire uh, climate hoax. Yeah. So the beginning of chapter six says, so what? It is a question that my students get tired of hearing. So what if the science of disasters and climate change is exaggerated by public debates and by some scientists? As one climate scientist observed to me after Hurricane Katrina ravaged the Gulf Coast, if people think that today's disasters are caused by or linked to human-caused climate change, isn't that a good thing if it motivates them to support, uh, motiv if it motivates the support for the right policies? Mm. So they're right, we're wrong. Mm -hmm. That's what that says. Yeah, the right? ends justify the means, yeah. Yep. Um, let's see here. I don't think I sent these to you, but two pages later, he says, the goal of political debate, of course, should not be to get everyone to think alike, but to paraphrase the writer Walter Lippmann to get people to who think differently to act alike. Mm -hmm. You don't have, you don't have that. 
That's the not one vote technocracy crap, people. Yes, and that's also the same thing that you covered in, uh, I think, in Green Swan, where they talked about basically if 50% of the people believe whatever you're trying to make them believe, and then Mm -hmm. out of the remaining 50%, let's say... uh, you know, uh, you know, another eighty percent of those just are willing to go along with it. Who cares if they really believe it? They're engineered into actually playing along. It's just like COVID land. Like we've brought that up as an example. You know, half the people wear masks because they think it protects them, and then half yeah. of the remaining half will wear them just because they don't want to get in fights with people. And then you know, there might be a few outliers that are the the ones who say, "Screw it, I'm not going to do it." But they don't care mm-hmm. as long as the vast majority will just go along. They don't give a crap if you believe. <laughs> it or not yeah later on he writes about the only equation needed you need to know to understand efforts to stabilize the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere requires a basic understanding of where carbon dioxide comes from 1980s uh japanese scientist yoichi kaya okay kaya explains that the future carbon dioxide emissions would be the product of four factors population economic activity how we obtain our energy, and how we use that energy. Period. Mm -hmm. So I write, oh, it only comes from humans. What about volcanoes? What about methane gas being released released from the ocean? Yeah, that page. What about Mm -hmm. decaying nature? Because the documentary, uh, The Great Global Warming uh, Swindle, you have all kinds of scientists that worked with the IPCC telling you that the volcanoes alone annually emit 10 times more CO2 into the atmosphere than all human activity combined. And the wow. oceans are more than volcanoes. Well, they found one scientist in the whole world, in Japan, that says, nope, it's just humans. And that's <laughs> what they go with. <laughs> Hey, how much will I get paid if I say I'm a scientist and I'll go along with him? <laughs> so that way they can have two. <laughs> yeah, the Federal Reserve will issue that, uh, that that study grant. Oh, okay, good, good. I'll say it. We'll give them a call after the show. <laughs> yeah. This is wild stuff, people. I mean... The fascinating thing about that book is that it it pointed out that the IPCC knows damn well that none of this climate stuff is increased in both frequency or intensity. And they also know damn well any of that, it's not caused by humans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Straight from their own words. Yeah. No, no, I mean, that's amazing stuff. So now with... um... So with the the second book that you reviewed, what was this one focused on? This is the Earth Brokers. So these are the guys that are environmental activists and went to Rio in 1992 thinking they were going to be with their peeps. And they came away and go, wait, this is one big giant resource grab for the elites. And they're going to steal everything and make the the inequality worse. Yeah, that book. Okay, so this, this is similar to that book I've... Not similar, but I mean, along the same lines of that guy who wrote the book, um, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, where he, he literally yeah. thought he was going to do good things and then realized yeah. he was in the middle of like a giant international monetary fund hustle where they were basically just going in and terrorizing these countries and stealing everything from them and locking yep. them into debt traps and everything else. 
Yep. So we're going to read uh, the introduction for this. It's only 10 pages. All right, Jim. So this is the uh, page you said this is, comes from before the introduction when you first opened up the book. Yeah. So let's take yeah, a look this at this. It's just like a one-page summary. So the Earth Brokers. Um, and I'm not going to say quote and end quote here, people. This is straight out of the book. I'm just reading. After decades of failed development plans for the South, the Earth Summit was built as a dramatic new approach to solving the planet's problems. Instead, the Earth Summit attempted to green development and its major promoters by pushing the environment to the top of the agenda. UN and government agencies adopted this new green solution without questioning. This was written in 1994. Okay, and think about it in terms of all the documents that have come out since. So we know a lot. As a result, the new world order that is emerging after the Rio de Janeiro conference is identical to the old one. If this new order were merely a warmed-over version of the old, things might be expected to continue deteriorating at the current pace, if not accelerate, since the new mantra is that the environment may, be, may even be a profitable enterprise that will stimulate development. What is more, the new order is slowly creating a global management elite that is co-opting the strongest people's movement, uh, movements. They're the very movements that brought the crisis to the public attention. So that's the natural economy that we'll see in a bunch of BIS documents. This These is great, were though. On it in 1994. This is great because you said this is from 94. Uh, Anthony Sutton's book that I told the audience about that we're going to review, the one you said to review on the Federal Reserve, that was published in 95. And then the paper I've been re reviewing, Industrial Society, its future was 95. So there was a lot of people trying to warn about the coming technocracy. Uh, and all yeah. of the uh, hijacking of the natural world back in uh, the mid-90s. Yep, they just didn't have a voice. Well, they did. It's just people didn't listen. <laughs> that <laughs> too. So the introduction started. In New York in December 1989, the member states of the United Nations agreed on, agreed on Resolution 44-228, the 228th decision in its 44th General Assembly. The resolution noted with concern that the world's environment was deteriorating rapidly and recommended that the UN General Assembly convene a conference of national leaders at the highest level to save the planet from catastrophe. Officially, this was to be called the United Nations Conference on Environmental and Development, unsaid for short. Unofficially, it was dubbed the Earth Summit by the man who was chosen to put it together, Maurice Strong a Canadian businessman and diplomat. I'm going to stop right there because these authors apparently did not know who Maurice Strong was. Um, but if you go watch James Corbett's documentaries, How Big Oil Conquered the World and Why Big Oil Conquered the World, Maurice Strong was a Rockefeller general. He ran several of their Canadian oil companies. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yep. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and I think Corbett's, uh, that documentary you mentioned, that's on um, YouTube, I think, for free, folks. Yep, yep. I have the DVD version. Ah, okay. All right, good. <laughs> it can't get deleted. <laughs> so, right. people, who is in charge of running the very first United Nations Summit on Climate? Rockefeller. Yes. Isn't that interesting? 
Okay. There's a banker behind. Er, there's a banker behind every curtain. Yep. We continue. Six months later, the first of four major preparatory meetings, uh, committee meetings. Uh, the meetings were called Prep Comms One to Four to thrash out conventions and agreements for the leaders to sign at the summit was held in Nairobi. A member of a non-governmental organization or NGO attending. It sent out a memo by computer to hundreds of other NGOs following the talks, describing his own reaction to the name Earth Summit. To him, he said, it conjured up the image of a steep mountain with the heads of state gathered at the summit from where the planet would be saved. <laughs> the people of the planet were waiting below for the agreements to be signed at the top and brought down to them. In between them, and the leaders, bearers toiled, carrying proposals up the mountain. <laughs> the heroes are coming to rescue the serfs. The bank, the All banker, well. the bankers are Moses <laughs> coming down the mountain with the tablets, ladies and gentlemen, to rescue you. <laughs> <laughs> this is hilarious. <laughs> Okay, we go on to page two. After the meetings and the lobbying were finished, the two of us, the authors here, sat down to review what had been achieved over the course of almost two years. This was about two months before the Earth Summit itself was held in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. We concluded that as a result of the whole unsaid process, the planet was going to be worse off, not better. <laughs> because unsaid occurred... At a crucial moment in the environmental and development history, this book also helps readers understand the transformation of development and the recent quite profound changes in North-South relations, as well as the deep changes the Green Movement has undergone. Mm. Throughout this book, we show how Unsaid has promoted business and industry, re rehabilitated nation-states as relevant agents, and eroded the Green Movement. We see how, as a result of unsaid, the rich will get richer, the poor poorer, while more and more the planet is destroyed in the process. PPP. <laughs> oh, man, this is great. Yeah, this, yep, is, uh, this is much better than the evening news. Yes. So they continue. Marxists have criticized industrial development since... since its social effects started to be felt in the late 19th century. They criticized it on the grounds that it produces injustices, enhances unequal power structures, and it ex exploits people. <laughs> Excuse me. However, Marxists have never questioned the underlying idea that industrial development will free society from the constraints of nature and thus ultimately liberate people altogether. The main obstacle that prevented this process from happening was not to be found in the development process itself, Marxists argued, but rather in the political power structures which were perpetuating inequities and oppression. Mm. And I write, a brilliant disguise. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And you can find some of the most prominent Marxists out there with the uh, banker money behind them as well, so... <laughs> yep they fund all sides uh, folks all sides they, they do yep even after the second world war techno scientific industrial development remained an unquestioned tool even for the most vocal critics of modern society that's technocracy mm -hmm. in an effort 
uh, in an effort of collective denial promoted by the massive public relations campaign, further industrial development was declared in the aftermath of the Second World War to be also the means of bringing about peace among nations. As a result, the United Nations was set up with the mission to promote, quote, peace through development, end quote. No longer was industrial development simply going to lead to a modern and rational society. It was also going to bring peace to the world. With the United Nations promoting it, industrial development progressed exponentially, exponentially and became uh, and planet-wide. What is more, the aggressive reconstruction of Western Europe became the model for the industrialization of the entire world. Development was now clearly the goal, and the development process of the North, spearheaded by the USA, was to be replaced, replicated by the South. The rare humanists who feared that the human side would get lost in the process were silenced, as the cultural subsystem was singled out and declared to be the realm of truly human aspirations. Thus, culture became a luxury that was made possible by continuous industrial development. My note to that, par that paragraph was, is one giant Rockefeller grift. And the other thing, Jim, is this is funny because this paragraph fits right in line with that International Monetary Fund timeline I read to the audience right off yep. their website that they're like, oh, World War II happened and all these places were destroyed. And then we showed up with bags of cash <laughs> and told everyone, we will build up your societies for you. Like it was like <laughs> they were ready to go. Yep. So under the Cold War, they write, the Cold War became one of the driving forces of industrial development because it stimulated scientific and technological progress on the one hand and promoted military-induced industrial, uh, industrial production on the other. Second, the Cold War cemented the nation-state system and thus reinforced the idea that nation-states were the most relevant units within, the within which problems had to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, let me get a drink of water. And uh, what I just want to bring that up. It's important because also the the uh, Cold War was on the IMF timeline as well. One of their big uh, big yep. events where they were able to come in and start developing uh, countries. But the other thing that's interesting is if you look at uh, some of the World Economic Forum stuff as well as some of the BIS documents. I'm sure you're coming across it. One of the things that they're starting to say is. Um, and especially in a lot of the WEF propaganda, that this next uh, decade is going to lead to the rise in sort of uh, sovereign nation states coming back. And all I see them actually doing is they're going to use that as the beginning of locking down areas to create quadrants, sort of like 15-minute cities and smart cities. They're going to be locked down countries. I, I mean, I personally believe five six years from now you may not be able to travel internationally short of having definitely a digital id or a digital passport like that seems to be something that they're going to do because i know the globalists who work so hard to create a centralized global system of government aren't going to return sovereign power to the nation states like that is not going to happen <laughs> that is not no. the goal it's more centralization okay, always under the guise of decentralization. Yep. The last part of the Cold War here, they write, industrial development came to be seen as a means to enhance national power, thus hiding the fact that the means had overtaken the end. Mm-hmm. Third world development. The development paradigm, 
was further strengthened by the political independence of many third world countries. Indeed, this is quoting uh, some document. <laughs> Truman had launched the idea of development in, in order to provide a comforting vision of a world order where the U.S. would naturally rank first. The rising influence of the Soviet Union, the first country which had industrialized outside of capitalism, forced Truman to come up with a vision that would engage the loyalty of the decolonizing countries in order to sustain his struggled, struggle against communism. For over 40 years, development had been competition between political systems. Mm, wow, interesting. Wow. Yep. With the Cold War solidly established and entirely embedded in the post-war reconstruction of the Third World buildup, the development paradigm became institutionalized in the very structure and nature of Third World nation-states. Thus, these countries started to enter the industrial circuit by borrowing money and exporting raw materials. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Where have we seen that before? Oh, the debt trap was born. Exactly. Who were they borrowing from? Right. Not from me. The, yeah, <laughs> me. The nature of industrial development was not questioned until the late 60s. Only then did social movement activism begin to raise serious doubts as to whether industrial development would really lead to the type of society promised by Truman and others. Mm. Okay. The move, social movements of the 1960s. In the North, the social movements of the late 1960s emerged. The main critique they voiced was the oppressive and technocratic tendencies of the development, i.e. the danger that the people, the human side, would get lost and forgotten. wonder where that's, we've heard that before. Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's such a mind, uh, a mind trip on all this stuff because you had Saul Alinsky known for rules for radicals who came out of this movement here, and it was around in the 60s. And Alinsky actually was against the idea of technocracy, but he also was this, like, double-talking snake that was driving people deeper into the hands of the bankers. Also, it's, They have so many, like, psychological operations and opposition that's running around. It's, it's fairly amazing, like, how they actually pull this off. But Yeah. In my next life, I'm so working for the bad guys, by the way, so... <laughs> so we continue one must distinguish between the american version of so social movement activism and the european one if the american version is a product of the countercultural movement the european movement is a product of the new left both agree that the process of development has got out of human control and does not serve the majority of the people mm. the critique formulated by the new left in contrast is in essence political. It is a critique of oppression, domination, and exploitation. Development in the South attracted criticism in the late 1960s and 1970s on the grounds that it was top-down, exploitative, exploitative, and oppressive. For all the radical critiques of Northern-centeredness and Northern-drivenness, development was being questioned in the South by only a very few people in the late 1960s and throughout the 70s. It was not until the advent of the Green Movement in the North in the 70s that a new argument was added to the critique of industrial development. Wow. And, and here's one of the things that's the mind trip, right? 
if you have okay so you have the uh technical folks like the technocracy the idea is just a huge giant centralized technological driven run managed govern you know country essentially and then when you have the folks on the left like the new left their idea is like pushing towards socialism which again is just a giant governmental system that controls over the people this is the thing with these no one ever pushes the idea in any significant way of less government and returning government to local power you never see that in any meaningful way come up and it's really the only actual system that allows for more freedom not less everything else is just big government whether whether it's run yep. by tyrannical folks or technology it's all big government yep. and the so bankers are always the green, in control of it the bankers are in control the green critique of development since the 1930s some scientists and engineers engineers have focused on natural resource conservation and environmental management starting with forestry and specific ecosystems Gee, I wonder what that is, folks. That's the Rockefeller Columbia University technocrat movement. There you go. In the 1930s. <laughs> yep. And as I've told, told the it, audience, uh, that hat tip to Maria Albanese, who, uh, when we were going back and forth a couple months ago on this, found Frank Vanderlip uh, yep. basically noted for bringing the Jekyll Island crew together and creating the Federal Reserve Banking System was the one bringing Howard Scott, the founder of technocracy, around. And and you'd say, why would the bankers support a guy who's pushing us towards energy certificates? Aren't they into money? No, they're into power and control. They don't give a crap what form the actual money is in as long as they control it. Look, they've openly said, if we control the money, we control nations and governments. Well, if the form of money is carbon credits, who creates the carbon credits? The banks. <laughs> right. It's the same That's, as running they're, a They're going to control. They have yeah. the same level of control. It doesn't matter yeah. what the system yeah, is. Yeah, they, exactly. They don't care if we're trading with seashells and pine cones. No. As long as they control the beaches where the seashells uh, wash up and they control the forest where the pine cones are. They don't give a crap exactly. what form of government it is or what form of uh, actual money it is. The only thing right. I will say, though, because the point is this. The difference between now and then is it, we know the fiat printed money system is a bullshit too. But the difference, as Jim points out, we point out, we're about to cross a line that we could never come back from. Money you can still spend anywhere, and they don't know about that transaction. Between you, the buyer, uh, I mean, you, the uh, the purchaser, and the person that you're buying it from. Once it goes CBDC, that's, that's Anything like digital. game over. It doesn't matter what you yeah. call it. If it goes yeah. digital, it's over. It's over because they can control the whole system. Yep. Yep. Okay, we continue. By the early 1970s, in the context of the social movements, one can detect in the North the replacement of conservationist ecology with political ecology. It was under the influence of the new left, in particular, that environmental problems became politicized and prominent. In addition to natural resource issues, this politicization focused primarily on pollution problems such as oil spills, chemical hazards, and nuclear pollution. In 1972, Maria's <laughs> Maria Albanese's favorite organization, <laughs> the Club of Rome, a group of concerned leaders from businesses and academia and government, published its Limits to Growth, 
mm-hmm. highlighting in particular the possible input limits to further industrial development. In the same year, the UN held its first conference on the human environment in Stockholm. Again, the focus was on natural resources management and to a lesser extent on pollution control, as both resources depletion and pollution were seen as potentially jeopardizing development. Now, this is the 70s. Okay, this is early 70s, right? 1972. When did we go off the gold standard? Was it the 70s? It was uh, 71 or 72. Yeah. And right after we went off the gold standard, Rockefeller came out and publicly said, all fiat currencies, which we were now on, wasn't backed by anything, go to zero. You want to own the natural resources. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So yes, they immediately sir. started working up a scheme to control all the resources. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how they do it. They yeah. are the economic terrorists. Within the intellectual context of the new left, environmental problems remained mainly political problems. Resources depletion and pollution were, it was argued in the 70s, the result of existing power structures which oppressed nature and people alike. Because of this of this political framework, political ecologists remained uncritical of many of the destructive forces of the industrial development, in particular of modern science, high technology, and the nation state. Indeed, their markedly northern-centered view led political ecologists to propose scientific progress, better technologies, and especially better policies as to as the answers to resources depletion and and pollution problems. The nation-state remained, in their view, the most important, if not the only, relevant unit of action. Mm. My note there is the Rockefeller clan and the banksters want to keep the politicians as they are because they can be controlled. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And the movement is all about power, control, and money. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly, okay. and that, and it's, and I always think it's, it's um, for them power and control because obviously then the money comes along with it. <laughs> yeah. right. If you own the printing press, you have infinite money. Right. Well, I put them in that order: power, control, money. Yeah, money, and the money <laughs> is what makes the ninety-nine percent uh, go to work every day to help them build this prison system like they use the money to make us get off our butts and go to work and build it for them yep okay we continue it was at this time within the context of political ecology that most environmental agents emerged be it greenpeace friends of the earth the national resource defense council in the usa or many more they all refer to this framework of political ecology within which they operate and which they perpetuate Later in the 70s, green parties used this green movement in Western Europe while simultaneously strengthening the purely political approach to environmental issues and problems. Therefore, because the political ecology framework, the nation state remained the focus of environmental activists. The causes of environmental degradation were thus localized in politics and not, for example, in the dynamics of the industrial development process. (laughs) Yet this analysis not only ignored the root causes of the development crisis, it also suggested that further scientific, technological, social, and political development would help solve the problems. Technocracy. (laughs) In short, 
In short, though it added some arguments to the crit critique of development, the Green Movement of the 70s did not identify industrial development as being the problem for the planet and its inhabitants. Yeah, I want a real trip. Go look and see who funded uh, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, uh, National Defense Council, and all that stuff. I guarantee it probably stemmed right from the Rockefeller. So, <laughs> Controlled opposition. <laughs> yep. So the new Cold War and global ecology, the new Cold War prepared the ground for global ecology, for which the so-called theory of nuclear winter was probably a trigger. First put forward in 1982, this theory states that a nuclear explosion anywhere on this planet has the potential to induce climate change planet-wide. Mm -hmm. Rather than being about the, the nuclear threat, this theory is in fact about global environmental change. I write, more theories, no facts. Mm -hmm. Ozone depletion and global warming in particular, along with other global environmental issues, such as deforestation and soil erosion, became the focus of this new global ecology. Global ecological problems were no longer simply resource depletion or pollution issues. All right. Under the next subsection, the challenges of global ecology, they write, if the challenge of global ecology is taken seriously, there are now serious output limits to further economic growth and industrial development. Promoting such massive industrial development, as most of these multilateral companies do, amounts to promoting accelerated destruction of the global environment. Mm. Think, think about that. They're telling you we have to save the planet and promoting the massive industrialization of the planet. Right. Yeah, I know. That's what we were just talking about. They want to go into these indigenous primitive areas. I, I was just reading, so, I don't know if it was something you sent me, I was, and I was laughing. I'm saying, they're saying these poor people are the ones that are doing all this polluting, and we have to industrialize them to make them not be polluters, while at the same time, they're telling us that our industrialization that we have uh, has caused us to be polluters. And at the same time, they're saying they want to go industrialize all these places. That's like, tell. I mean, look, if you want to look at pollution based on the way they weigh it, that's like trying to tell me the Amish pollute more than I do. You know, I mean, come on. Uh, they're they're yep. sitting at home operating on candlelight. Well, it's interesting. I'm going to flip ahead. You don't even know this. Uh, this is page 44 of the book. Uh, the Framework Convention on Climate Change. They write, Global warming would lead to rises in sea level and coastal flooding. Unpredicted. This came straight from the IPCC in 1990, folks. Okay. All right. You don't have this page, Dustin. I'm just flipping ahead because it's relevant to what you just said. In 1990, the IPCC wrote, global warming would lead to rises in sea level and coastal flooding, unpredictable weather patterns and drought, and therefore decreased ag agricultural productivity and further hunger and migration. Because carbon dioxide is mostly responsible for global warming, the IPCC concluded that carbon emissions needed to be cut by 60% at least in order uh, simply to stabilize current carbon levels in the atmosphere. The IPCC had also assessed that the industrialized north accounted for the majority of carbon dioxide emissions, basically due to the fact that such emissions are totally correlated with fossil fuel consumption fossil fuels being the primary motor of industrial development. Okay, 
folks, we have proven that all every word of that to be absolute lies. Mm. Or in 1990, maybe it wasn't a lie, but it turned out to be 100% false. Mm. We just read half of it from right. their, from the IPCC in 2017 saying, yeah, it doesn't cause any of that. And we saw in the other document with the CO2 emissions globally, remember the one that went back to 1750, however, they, yeah. they figured that out. It shows that 100% of the increase in CO2 emissions annually from 1979 or whatever is China, Southeast Asia, and India. Has nothing. The last time I checked, those are not industrialized north. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, China's in the northern hemisphere. They're in the northern, but they weren't industrialized. Mm -hmm. Anyways, okay. Back to the introduction. Oh, we're going back. What page are we on? Yep. Nine. Nine, okay. Protected okay. by the Cold War and legitimized by the social and environmental movements of the late 1960s and 70s, in the age of global ecology, nation states not only have the legitimate le, le, legitimation problem, they also now have to demonstrate that they are still relevant agents when it comes to the new challenges of global ecology. The role of mili the military is, of course, brought into question in a very similar way by global ecology. Next page, page 10. The UN system, whose aim, as we have seen, is to promote development, not to mention the fact that over the past 40 years, the UN system has created a development elite of its own, whose very existence is now brought into question by the global ecological threat. In this book, we show that Unsaid offered a unique opportunity to all these different agents to redefine and re-legitimize themselves in the new age of global ecology challenges and changes. Now, why do they have to redefine themselves or re-legitimize themselves? Did they already blow up their credibility? Mm -hmm. Anyway, just, just pondering there. Okay, they continue. Rather, the outcome is a new push for more environmentally destructive industrial development. And then I, they highlight the Bruntland Report, Our Common Future, which was uh, created by the World Commission on Environment, UNSAID, uh, in 1983. And the report entitled The Challenge of the South is a product of the South Commission, just <laughs> established in 1987. And this book goes through those documents. Okay. That's the introduction of the book. Yeah, this is great. So these so you said these guys were uh they what were they? They were going to work what they're environmental the activists. Yeah, and then so that they thought that they were so they were sucked into the the live action role play, you know, into the grift, thinking they were going to save the planet. And then they realized that it was a giant um, economic terrorist takeover of all of these areas. I don't think they were sucked in. I think they were they were truly saying, "Hey, all this industrial development is depleting resources." Number one, well, environmentally damaging. Number two, and and making the South poorer and the North richer. Number three, mm -hmm. they were just activists. And they go to this thinking that they're going to learn something or be part of the, their people, and they realize it's a huge grift. 
Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. They, I mean, they were true believers in their cause. They weren't grifters who broke yeah. away. They were true believers and then realized right. that the, the system was a scam, that the whole thing was controlled. The whole thing was yeah. not about what it said it was. Right. And, folks, I recommend reading the book. I am up to page... Jim's flipping uh, through 50 his book. Or, 50 or so, and as you can see, there are... Yeah, I was actually lots of, lots of important data. Yeah, when you were sending this over to me, Jim, with all the orange highlights on there, I was trying to. I have a AI system that I run that through to see how much carbon you emitted with all of the highlighters that you use to actually <laughs> mark up your notes on those pages. <laughs> what do you go through? Like a pack of twelve highlighters a week? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I usually have a, a few on hand just in case. Oh, yeah. So now that one, you're 50 pages in. Or the, the other book, are you finished with that one? Yeah. yeah oh, you are? Exactly. Okay. And then you started this one. I started this one. This one's about 200 pages, so I should be done in a week or so. Oh, okay. And then are you You said you have uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Are you going to do that one? I do. Yeah. I am at some point, but uh, I think... Next, I'm doing another climate hustle book, mm. and then I got a book on the Rockefellers. Oh, okay. I think it'll be after that. Yeah. What's the so book on we'll the see. Rockefellers? That's um that Nordegard guy. I think he's Norwegian. He did a PhD dissertation uh, oh, okay. on the Rockefellers and wrote a book about it. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So who's in charge of the Rockefellers? It used to be David Rockefeller, right? It was like the most front forward. Yeah, one. I don't remember anymore. He was like in a wheelchair. He kind of looked like George Soros. Yeah. Uh, it was he pretty free. I don't, know who, I don't know who does it now. Well, I, look, I give credit where credit's due. I think it was probably Alex Jones 20 years ago. It made me look at the Rockefellers because he used to go out with a bullhorn in front of David Rockefeller's house and start screaming. I can hear you're taking over the planet. This is Alex Jones with bone broth. I'm going to take the bone broth and the anti-globalist foaming agent, rub it on my armpits and helps uh, keep these people away with the garlic pills. That's like basically what, what it, uh, what he does. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that, so that, that's did you get that cool. spreadsheet I sent you? Uh, let's see the one that you sent to the email before the show. Yeah, so people, you know, we started off talking about how, you know, um, solutions, right? Like uh, finding local banks we've talked about. We talked about the uh, DTCC looking into like blockchain technology for your Wall Street type assets. The DTCC is a clearinghouse for that. So we're not sure. We're speculating on how they're going to manipulate that into digital slavery. Mm -hmm. um your wall street assets so i it just want to highlight this i I've, we've shown the chart of the s p 500 back to 1900 before on your show it might yes. have been episode 80 where you know when it goes down it takes 20 years to get get back to break even on average roughly well the market started turning down in december of 2021 and so uh, I read an article yesterday about it. You know, the market's up 600% since 2008. So this is simple math, folks. 2008, you you start with 100 grand. And by the time the crash is over, you're down 50%, okay? So you're down to 50 grand. 
And then this 600% run starts, okay? Since the financial crisis, right? So your 50 grand turns into 300 grand at the end of 2021. And the market's down like 15 to 20% since then. Let's say top to bottom, it goes down 50% again by the end of 2023. So then you're back down to 150,000 bucks. So you started with 100 grand in 2008. You, you went up, you went down, you went up, you went down. And at the end of 2000 or beginning of 2024, you got 150 grand. The internal rate of return, folks, is scroll down 2.56%. <laughs> Wow. So you did all that and you lost sleep at night and you worried and you, you cussed out your financial advisor and you shredded or burned one of your statements to get a two and a half percent rate of return. Wow. That's insanity. Now you got to run one with your um, oil and gas royalties at the, uh, yeah, I'm plugging your business. No, you got to run one with the oil and gas royalties at, what'd you say, like you try to average around, what, eight to 12, you said? 10 to 12 is where we normally start you. And if, if the commodity prices go down, you might drop to, you know, six, seven, eight percent. If if the commodity prices go way down, you might get four or five. Okay. <laughs> and then, yeah, but then, I mean, they're going to end up coming back up. And like, I mean, and what they come back. And what's, and I mean, and this is obviously you, obviously you can't make like predictions, but as someone who's personally invested in this stuff, would you say with everything you're reading on the climate hustle and everything that's coming, the price in commodities is only going to go up, right? Because they're going to create all this artificial uh, rise in price. They're going to, uh, you know, with all the pretend attacks on it, they're going to be adding fees and ta all kinds of stuff. I mean, would you say that it's going to go up rather well, than down in the long than term? It's simpler than that. Demand is rising. Go look up the demand for coal in the last you know several years. It hit a record high in 2022. Oh, you mm. didn't hear that on the news, did you? It's expected to hit another record high in 2023. Why? India and China are developing, period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the oil demand ex is expected to rise 1% a year. That doesn't sound like a lot, but oil is a massive commodity. Okay? Well, the other, the other in, thing in, in Poland India, going on. Yeah. India just became the third largest car car sales country in the world. And they're mm -hmm. they're one less than one third of the sales in the US and China. What's gonna happen in the car sales in India the next 10, 10 years? Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, only two percent of those were electric vehicles. So you've got a massive demand for oil, it's not going away. You've got a massive demand for natural gas, it's not going away, but supply is that they're suppressing supply with all this uh, this green push and green agenda and uncertain this and uncertain that. Yeah. No, definitely. That's why I'm saying. So if you if you had, based on your own uh, like your own personal investments, let's say you're going out ten years, right? Do you think mm -hmm. the price of uh, oil and gas are going to go up or down over the ten years? Up. Yeah. So you got to run one of these charts. What the hell? Put it next to it. Say you started with 100,000 in 2008. I mean, you'd have to know what the... You just have to come up with an well, average. It, you, it's like buying land, though. It's real estate. It's like buying land. You don't get a statement every month or every quarter or every year on what the value of your land is. You get a rate of return based on the royalty checks. Mm -hmm. And it's multi-generational cash flow. Unlike gold, who has no cash flow, this is an asset that I can pass on to my kids that is cash flowing. Right, right, 
And so people understand, because uh, we haven't gone over it on the show. It's basically every, yeah. uh, I want to do a show on it, though, um, as soon as we take a little break from this stuff so you can explain it. Because I, I had said to the audience, you had sent me over some stuff to look at. I mean, I, I thought it was, I've heard about it over the years, but I never went and explored it until a few months ago when Maria Albanese first introduced me to you and you sent me some information and then you were yeah. able to clarify what it is. And, and I myself personally, like I have people in my life I've been talking to about it because there are folks and this is wide range, generally not younger, but I don't really talk to younger people, but people of my age, uh, between 40 and 50 that are, let's say people that work for, uh, employers for years, which I always work for myself. So they were always paying into a 401k and mm. they're sitting there asking me, well, you talk about all this crazy stuff on your show. What the hell do you think is going to happen to my money? And I'm like, I don't know. Cause like you said, you can't really do financial planning for people cause you don't know their circumstances. Well, I don't know what's your money invested. And I'm not licensed to do so anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even with me, they say, what's going to happen. I'm like, well, I don't know where your money's invested inside your, for I have no idea, but, um, they they want to know what's going on that's why i thought it'd be interesting to do a show on it because uh any type of uh, investments people can make that are safer uh than putting their money in wall street which is what they'll traditionally do if they're going to charles schwab or anywhere like that right i mean they're just going to be putting it yep. into some fund yeah the royalties are basically existing oil and gas wells and they're in the original lease when the oil and gas company leased the minerals they negotiated a royalty to the mineral owners. Well, whatever that royalty, whether it was 12% or, or 20%, doesn't matter. You know, we've got somebody that owns those those royalty payments. We analyze those from existing wells and we pay them something. And then, you know, we did all the homework to make sure there's more upside and you've got all the acres and take all the risk out of it other than commodity price and maybe, well, you know, some well mechanically breaking, which 1% or less chance of happening. Mm -hmm. outside of that risk or nuclear war you know we can't obviously predict that but the simple risk we can mitigate by analyzing this deal mm -hmm. and it's like flipping a house you know we we keep a little piece for ourselves and we flip it for a, a 25 30 ish per percent profit that's it right right but it's it's cash flow it's these these things pay out monthly if mm -hmm. you've got a small deal with a handful of wells and they're doing maintenance on the wells okay you might miss six weeks because they're doing maintenance, just like you do maintenance on your car. They do maintenance right. on the well, so they last longer. Same concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like you've said, it makes sense. It's not going to sit that long because they're not making money if the well isn't uh, right. operational. They're losing their right. money every day that it's shut down. Right. But, um, but no, I think it's great because, I mean, you obviously have spent more time in that world uh, having been a you know, financial planner and then in the oil and gas royalties. So as far as all of the stuff that you've explored personally over the years as safer long-term investments. This is obviously one that you like, otherwise you wouldn't have gotten involved with it, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And then, and then you, and you dabble in some like real estate as well, like real estate. A real little estate. bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and then, like, that's thing, what you were saying earlier. You find these to be safer uh, investments and they're hard assets. It's a big giant middle finger to wall street. Yeah. Exactly. Versus sticking your money in stock. Like if you had your choice, would you rather buy uh, oil and gas royalties or oil and gas stocks? Now, w knowing what I know, yeah. royalties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can make money in the stock market, but it's a casino. You can't mm. control it. 
you know, when you look at these royalty stocks and you look at when the price of whatever the commodity is, oil or natural gas goes down, you could lose 65 to 85% of your money in these stocks. And you're going to get a statement that says your 100 grand is now worth 15,000 bucks or 30,000 bucks. What's going to happen to you mentally? Yeah. And then you're sitting there for the next 10 years waiting for the prices to come back up, hoping or to get five your money years back. or whatever. Right. Yeah. When you own royalty deeded title real estate, I don't get a statement. If the commodity price goes down and my royalty payments, my monthly checks go from, say, 5000 a month to 2500 a month. I don't get a statement saying I'm down. My, my hundred grand is down to 50 grand. Right. My checks are down, but I'm still getting a check. Exactly. You're still getting a check. And the other thing is it, it's like buying a house, right? That you're looking at for long-term, not just flipping it. You're not sitting right. there freaked out because in your plan, when you decide to put this together is not that I'm buying this, these mineral rights, which is uh, below the surface of the land to flip three months later. Like that's not part of your plan. Right. And, and I got to be honest, like most of the people I, I'm friends with that have made money off of, I mean, I'm taught whether it be stocks or whether it be cryptocurrency are friends of mine that are pretty smart and they sit around and day trade all day. I'm talking like they're on their phones, 12, 13, 14 hours a day, sitting at home on the couch, day trading yeah. or on their laptop day trading. And there are guys literally, you know, you talk to them one day, they're like, dude, I made four grand today. The next day they're like, dude, I lost $12,000. I'm ready to shoot myself. Like, um, they just sit there as good as they think they are, the majority of them, they're like gamblers. They're like, you know, it's your friends like go to the casino. They go to the casino and then they come back and they tell you they won $14,000 on roulette. And you're like, well, last month, didn't you lose 52000 <laughs> So They forgot cool. about that. <laughs> yeah. And interesting, so, interestingly, royalties are the exact opposite of day trading, you know, where you're on your phone 12 hours a day. Royalties are literally dubbed mailbox money. Mm -hmm. it's the clampets from Beverly Hillbillies. You go to your mailbox once a month and you get a check and you deposit it in the bank. There's no mm -hmm. effort. Yeah. Yeah. And you I, don't and have I'm tenants that you have to kick out. You don't have a house. You have to rehab after you kick the tenants out. None of that yeah. crap. Yeah. And I, and I had a, fr a friend of mine. I, I used to watch him. He'd sit there all day, right? He was, uh, I mean, he dabbled yeah. in day trading stocks, cryptos and was doing forex like foreign exchange he was sitting there all day graph charting you know did all this four, four monitors up yeah, yeah yeah he took all these classes and stuff he like i mean he was really good with math and, and he would sit there and he'd be doing all of his uh charting all his guys and boom i got it and he was sitting there for 40 seconds waiting for something to pop and like all of a sudden drops he loses like the thousand bucks that he had sitting on that. And I'm like, dude, is there really a science to this? Or is this, you know, oh, come on, the candle, the, uh, what was it, the candlestick book or something yeah. with all the candles? And I'm sitting there watching going, did you have any idea what's, because most of the people that, that make a ton of money have insider knowledge. They know what's going to happen. Like years ago, my father's uh, friend was head of um, marketing for Boston Scientific. 
My yeah. father coached my sister's uh, softball. She was an all-American softball pitcher. So this guy comes and he tells all the dads one day after the, the, the game, they're drinking beers. He goes, listen, I forgot. It was something crazy. Like at the time, Boston Scientific was trading at like $12 a share. And he goes, we've got this new drug that's coming out in three weeks. I'm telling you, like the stock's going to skyrocket. My father was always very conservative with his investments, so he didn't do it. But all the other dads that were like lawyers and doctors, they were all buying like a hundred thousand dollars a piece and like lo and behold three weeks later man all of them made like a million bucks and my dad was sitting there going well i didn't have to risk losing anything but i mean it was like that was all insider stuff where they're making money and, you know they weren't sitting Look, at their computer jerking around if, if you honestly think you can beat goldman sachs jp morgan morgan stanley bank of america and all the major hedge funds in new york do you honestly think you can beat them? Right. Consistently. No. And there's there's been, I don't know how many studies at this point, 95% of the managers of mutual funds don't beat the market over a 10-year or longer period of time. Why are you in them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have to do that's the thing, and you have to do it consistently every day. I mean, you have to do it more than 50% of the time <laughs> to actually turn, turn a profit right. on it. So that yeah. says, okay, don't have a mutual fund have had just owned the index itself. Well, we've seen with the index when the when the banksters orchestrated to go down by manipulating the, the interest rates in the economy, okay, they crash it, then it's gonna take you twenty years to get your money back. Mm -hmm. I don't want yeah. any part of that. No. No. If I they just told want... you that before you invested money, would you do it? No, of course you wouldn't do it. Right. Now, see, when you were in the, you were in financial uh, planning, right? That was your business, mm -hmm. but you were independent. Yeah. I was independent, right? Oh, uh, okay. So now, what were you, what were you working with? Like uh, middle class, upper middle class, wealthy? What was your main clientele? It was more middle class people. Um, I had some wealthy clients, but you know, I've always been for the little guy and the underdog. You know, when I. I briefly managed money privately, mm. not in a hedge fund, but for like private clients, um, mm. for a massive financial planner in, in the Carolinas. I did that briefly. When I got back in and built my own practice, had my own clients again, I mm. made the conscious decision to not go after the extremely wealthy clients like everybody else with experience in the business does. Mm. I'm like, well, why would I want to go compete them? I mean, then it's just my, you know, my mutual funds better than yours. And that's stupid. Yeah, and there was this this massive amount of people that were typically blue blue collar types. <laughs> Whether it was a blue, they worked blue collar jobs or white collar jobs. They had a couple of hundred grand in a four hundred one k. They retired and they rolled it to an IRA, and they they didn't know what to do with it. And their advisor stopped calling them because they didn't have a million bucks. Mm -hmm. Now this was a long time ago, so maybe that threshold's two million. I don't know. Well, that's who I went after because they need they need help. And it's just as much work as a client with a million or two million bucks. Okay, mm -hmm. so it's actually a little less work. And, and I had people literally bringing me like food from their gardens and stuff every quarter <laughs> when we got together and go over stuff. When I sold my practice and had to have those meetings and say, here's who's taken over, I had people crying. Mm -hmm. I knew yeah, every, yeah. I had all their money. I knew everything about their, their life, their personal lives, their financial life. It was a great business that so I would say it was middle to upper middle class for the most part. 
you know, mm. people that worked in a factory and had 400 grand to roll over in an IRA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, and what that was were, my practice. So, so back then when you were doing that, uh, so what were you, um, what were like the majority of the investments? Was it putting people into Wall Street products and things like that? Or were you doing it was, a mix of It was of individual stuff? stocks and bonds. It was largely okay. individual stocks and bonds. Yeah. And oh, I owned okay. them personally. Oh, you did. Okay. Similar to what you yep. now that you own oil and gas personally. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And then, so th back then when you were doing, so that was pre-2010? Uh, that was from, well, I started it in 1995 and it morphed around because I was managing money for a while privately and all that. But I started building that practice. I want to say it was 2002 or three. Oh, okay. And I sold it in 2010. <laughs> oh, and 2010 is when you got into oil and gas. Right. Hey, you should have just sold all those people into oil and gas. What were you thinking? Well, I didn't know how to get them into it. I found a Reg D offering. That's how I found oil and gas. I was trying to find an alternative, but you know, I didn't know how to do it. So yeah, yeah. Well, no, because this iteration of the oil and gas stuff that you're now doing uh, for you know middle class, upper middle class folks, that this is like a, a newer business that you started a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, because when I was first doing oil and gas, after I figured it out. I was actually managing carved out hedge fund money. So mm -hmm. maybe it was a $100 million hedge fund. They carved out 10, 20 million bucks for royalties. And I managed that or, or found them the assets, did all the due diligence for the asset that, for them to acquire. Mm -hmm. And so it was hedge funds and endowments, et cetera. I did that. And then when prices crashed, oil prices crashed, they went from like 130 to 40. Uh -huh. uh, we just could not find anybody willing to sell at a reasonable price. Right. They wanted the prices as though the commodity was at 130 and right, it right. wasn't. So it was really hard to get a deal to buy at the right price. Um, I still did a few deals here and there privately, but, you know, to pay the bills, it was doing some tax planning, put the CPA hat, hat back on. Uh -huh. Got back into royalties about three years ago. Uh, my buddies called me up and like, hey, let's get back in the game. And the prices were right, you know, in terms of we could buy really good deals. Um, mm. But also the climate was right. And now, you know, we've got supply directly from the sellers. We don't we don't go through brokers or anything like that. So Right. So you're able to just go direct to the seller to the sellers. Yep. Yeah. 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 No, my, I, my partner started out as a landman uh with Devon Energy. Mm. And um then he was he was he built a whole portfolio for a massive family office before he went out on his own. Mm yeah that's why i find it to be fascinating because again um i mean and when we were talking about it in the beginning i was saying this is i mean the time is right just because i know people in my personal life that are looking for and i'm talking like you know 40 to 65 that are looking for different things to get involved with and some of them don't want to do real estate like buy a rental property or yeah they don't they, they don't want that kind of that kind of a headache or people see real estate going up and down like crazy the last couple of years they're like freaked out by yeah. that it's too much of a risk and then i know people that tried to do rental properties and had disasters and unless you're mm -hmm. you're the type of person that wants to manage that or you have a good business model where you can hire a building manager a property manager it's like that, that could become a major headache for folks too you know yeah, and we never tell anybody, anybody, you know, hey, sell everything, all your Wall Street stuff and just do royalties, you know, it's whatever. We, we always ask the question, does it deserve a place in your portfolio? We think the answer is yeah. Mm -hmm. 
What percentage is up to you? Yeah. So let's work on, uh, I mean, we'll do a whole show on that. And any other, I mean, if you have any other interesting, you know, investment vehicles you've come across, uh, you know, stuff that you do in your life, because I think this is really important uh, to people now uh, because there's a lot of, um, I mean, I've been talking about it on the show. I mean, obviously everyone is in different financial circumstances, but if people are looking, one, to get a piece of land somewhere, even right now, like my wife and I, we, we're just constantly looking in West Virginia. We're ready to, because West Virginia has some unrestricted land where you can do anything you want. Now, there's been some pollution that's gone on there, so there's stuff you have to look at, obviously. Yeah, but, the devil um, we know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but we're ke- we're keeping our eye out, and we make calls here and there. But we're looking to kind of uh, pull the trigger in the next year or two uh, mm-hmm. for that. So that's what I've been telling people: is you know, for us, even if we get a piece of land that has a uh, septic tank and a well and electricity running to it, it doesn't mean we necessarily have to start building and developing it right away. But we've got it; it's taken care of because West Virginia still has a lot of good deals out there especially if you're mm-hmm. willing to go out in the middle of nowhere. The only issue you run into, like we just looked at this piece of property uh, a few days ago, this you can only get satellite internet. Well, she works remotely, and obviously with the show and other stuff I do, and satellite internet, as far as my experience, just isn't enough. So you have to be within 30 minutes of a place where you can have an office or something that you can go to with internet, which I'm not opposed to. Um, of having to leave the property to go access the internet. Yeah. I don't think that's a horrible thing. But um, that's a lot of stuff people are looking at, and like moving money around, being able to do that. If you've got, uh, I know people right now that are saying, I've got a hundred grand sitting in savings. I'm too afraid to put it in Wall Street or give it to a financial planner, but I know it's sitting in savings and it's losing value every day. All right, so is it better off to go grab a piece of property right now, a few acres somewhere? Uh, should you put half of it in the oil and gas? Like these are the kind of th- real questions people are asking you know and i think yeah. you you've noticed it too because that's a lot of people that have contacted you through pain tv and the other networks you've been building are folks that are sitting there saying i don't want to give it back to wall street <laughs> i don't know what the hell to do with this well it's not just that i see people um you know in that age range really 50s for the most part they went through 08 lost 50 percent of their money and now they're a lot closer to retirement and they're, the market's going down again, and they're basically what I, they're having what I call an oh shit moment. <laughs> oh shit, I can't go through that again. Yeah. What do yeah. I do? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of people, I mean, I, I've got someone right now uh, who I'm going to introduce you to soon. Um, and they're over. They actually retired, and now they're, they're back in consulting. Uh, but they've got some money that they want to. They may want to invest in there because that the, you know the idea of having a check coming in every month um, is great because somebody like that who let's say they're consulting and they make an extra three thousand dollars a month consulting between what they're collecting on social security and then obviously their nest egg that they saved up and they go well wait a second if I can invest this amount uh, take a little out of Wall Street put it into there and have fifteen hundred dollars coming in every month. Now I can cut back my consulting hours by 50% and I can, you know, be retired more than I, than I planned on doing. They, they went back actually because they lost a bunch of money the last couple of years in the market. Yeah. And they said, Oh, I need more money coming in. Got to go back to work. <laughs> so. Yeah. I did. I did a spreadsheet uh, not too long ago. A realtor asked me to do this. So people buying a house, right? I think I did 500 grand, but the math works at, at any dollar amount. 
a 7% mortgage over 30 years, assuming you're working and can make the mortgage payment, okay? Mm. Or not working, but you can make the mortgage payment. And instead of uh, paying the, the ca cash for the house, you put the same amount into royalties that just earns 10%. It never goes higher, just stays at 10%. And you take the royalty payments and put it on top of your mortgage payment. Mm -hmm. It cuts the 30-year mortgage down to like nine years. Oh, that's a great idea. See, that's creative it's thing. And not only that, how much that the amount of money interest you save over that 30 years is the same amount you invested in royalties in the first place. So you basically it, invested it for free. Exactly. No, that that's actually brilliant. See, that's the type of financial planning that people should have access to. It's not just let me put it right. in this mutual fund for you. It should be let's get creative and figure this out on on paper. That's great though. So what was that for an you created that for a real estate agent? Um Yep. So they could show this to clients? Yep. That's really good, man. That that's that's fantastic. See, that's the kind of stuff you uh should be talking about on the shows too. I know you like to do the uh the climate hoax all the time but this is the kind of information that people would actually uh i mean if they they, they could they'd pay you for it <laughs> but they don't need to pay you i don't think for that but no that that's real that's a really good idea yeah i mean if you've got the money you know not yeah. everybody can afford cash for a house but if you've got the money it makes mm -hmm. more sense to do it that way and then at the end of the day you both you own both assets mm -hmm. yeah definitely <laughs> all right with the same pot of money that you started with you own both assets yeah yeah definitely all right is there anything yeah. else uh you want to um no anything else until next time stay tuned all right so listen the next time you come on are we gonna uh we're finishing the green swan or are you gonna have six more books uh that we're gonna no. review <laughs> we're gonna finish the green swan all right we're gonna finish the green swan all right jim well thank you uh as always man you're a wealth of knowledge um and if anybody wants to reach out to jim you're gonna have to do that through uh pain.tv slash gold or just email me at me at dustingoldshow.com you can just email me and i'll get you jim's information all right thanks jim yep. we appreciate it um, if I were you, I'd get back to work, read a couple more books today because you've been slacking and in honor of Martin Luther King Jr. I think you should at least read three or four books. Um, if you can do that. <laughs> All, right, All right. Until next time. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was wide awake Jim, or you could call him big Jim. He's six foot four. Call him whatever you want. We just don't use his uh, last name on the show yet. Uh, once once he wants to be out there more, we'll do that. But, folks, thank you very much. Uh, if you haven't had a chance, check it out episode 134. That was our continued analysis of industrial society and its future, which I will be picking back up tomorrow. If you go over to pain.tv slash gold, the young bucks there told me that they do have the link to all of the documents that I provided them from all the research Jim's doing, and I actually just added all of his highlights of the two books he just went over as well. So that should be there 
Um, if you'd like to, feel free to make a donation to the show, donorbox.org slash Dustin Gold Show. And please leave us a five-star review and a comment over at Apple Podcasts. It helps drive up the show in the old algorithm. Whoa, folks. I feel like I'm drunk there. In the algorithm, uh, it drives us up in the rankings there, and it actually does help. So that's it, folks. Until tomorrow, my name is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold.